welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, we have a lot of good stuff in store for you. We have an interview with Dr. Andy Sultz. He's running for political office. So warning, this is going to be a political interview. It is not the stock and trade Plenary Session interview. We're going to talk about politics. We may even take stances on political issues. So if you're not interested in hearing about politics, if you want to keep this science and medicine, then don't listen to this interview. But if you are willing to go into the political arena, you have a great interview in store for you. And before we go to the interview, I got two things I want to talk about. One, I want to talk about skepticism and where it is best placed. And two, I want to talk about a randomized controlled trial that appeared in the JCO that claims to say we ought to treat patients with high-risk smoldering myeloma with Revlimid. And we will examine whether or not that really is the take-home message of that clinical study. So you won't want to miss this episode. Stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. First, the skeptics. Well, this week on Twitter, I'd been in a little bit of hot water with the skeptics because I said what I really thought about an issue, and it's an issue that a lot of people have spoken to me about over the years, and a lot of us have been thinking this, but not a lot of us are willing to say it online. And so finally I said it because I'd had enough because somebody pushed me over the top, and it was a tweet that came out at the end of last week by somebody whose handle is Doc Bastard, an anonymous doctor on Twitter. And I joked later on that the Profiles in Courage Award will someday go to an anonymous doctor on Twitter who has the courage to stand up, in this case, against crazy ideas in alternative medicine that no one really cares about. That's what they're standing up against, and this doctor has the courage to do that too, anonymously, like all true courageous folks. And so here's what, was, here's what happened. There's a tweet by an account called Hydrogen Water, which I have no idea why anyone uh, would ever follow that. And in fact, only 42 people are following Hydrogen Water, suppliers of hydrogen water bottles and the H2 cap. I don't even know what that means. And they write, Did you know hydrogen water has been studied as a cancer reducer? It acts to increase the number of NK cells which seek out and kill cancer cells, inhibiting the proliferation of cancer cells in the body. Read the study and download our ebook for info. And of course, hydrogen water is a crazy idea. Don't even know what it means. And of course, the claim that it's empowering NK cells is a ludicrous and unproven claim. And the only kernel of truth in this thing is, of course, that all cells require water. But this tweet was doing a great job of being ignored and lost to the sands of time. It had, I think, three retweets when I first saw it and six likes, and now it's got the seven retweets and 12 likes, which is 
in the world of Twitter, quite sad. But some anonymous doctor decided that they wanted to dunk on this tweet. And here's the dunk, Doc Bastard. Number one, no it hasn't. Two, no it doesn't. Three, your ebook is bullshit. Four, your hydrogen water is also bullshit. Five, you're in violation of the Cancer Act. And six, delete your account, hydrogen water. What a courageous tweet. And that courageous tweet earned 350 retweets and 1.7 thousand likes. And there are more examples. Here's another one, the same Doc B, anonymous Doc, with the courage to quote tweet something. This is uh, something called BBC Oxford, a tweet with one retweet, one like. It says, does homeopathy have a place? Question mark. Call some number. Doc B. Short answer, no. Long answer, no, with many O's. Homeopathy has been thoroughly tested and found to be effective for exactly zero conditions. It is rank bullshit, and BBC Oxford should be embarrassed for offering false balance to such bullshit. But again, that tweet was being read by nobody, and now it has 126 retweets and 625 likes for the dunk. Great. Here's another one. Dante Sears writes, This is the psychological cause of cancer. If you're fighting this disease, Google neuropsychoneuroimmunology to learn how trap negative emotions cause disease. Okay, some crazy idea. One retweet, five likes. Doc B, quote, tweets it. This is bullshit. You're preying on gullible cancer patients by lying to them in order to make money, which makes you the lowest kind of person. You're not a doctor. You're a vile charlatan. Delete your account, which has 174 likes and 1,100 retweets. This account is just making a living out of finding things no one is reading and retweeting it. Oh, here's another one. Liberty Barnum, gonna keep telling you, calcium benzonate clay taken internally pulls heavy metals from the brain. Okay, God, something crazy. Four retweets, four likes. And then he quote tweets it. No, it doesn't. No, it fucking doesn't. This is 100% bullshit. Delete your account. 226 retweets, 1.7K likes. Okay, here's another example. Zoltan Rona, this is why vitamin C works against cancer. The evidence is clear. And that has 11 retweets, 19 likes. Doc B quote tweets it. The evidence were actually clear. Every oncologist on the planet would be using vitamin C for cancer. You're selling bullshit. Stop. 42 retweets, 310 likes. He's just amplifying things that no one's reading. This is totally crazy. It's like sleuthing the internet to find things no one is reading just to amplify them. Doesn't make any sense at all. It's a waste of time. It's the Streisand effect. Ah, one more example, Q-Wave. Q-Wave Harmonizer does four important things. The stress blocker generates energy. I don't even understand what this means. It only has nine likes, no retweets. Doc Bastard, quote tweets it. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. No, it fucking doesn't. Using a stock photo of four models does not make your bullshit less bullshitty. Delete your account. 95 retweets, 634 likes. This is crazy. This person makes a living out of finding things no one reads and retweets it so that people who don't like these things can just feel good about themselves and virtue signal that they also are educated and know these things don't work. Of course they don't work, but why are you drawing attention to this? It makes no sense. So this doctor, like so many people on Twitter, picked something that no one was reading or cared about and amplified it 70-fold just to dunk on it. And what are they saying? That this is bullshit and it doesn't work. You know what? Of course. We all know that. Everyone knows that it's bullshit and doesn't work. In fact, maybe of the six likes it had at the time, three of them were errant likes. You know, you don't know how many likes were real likes and how many were errant likes. It's an account that nobody is following. It's got 40 followers. It's a sad account. And so here's what I write. I, I wanted to make this point because I've seen this over and over and over by so many people online who just make a career, make a pastime out of 
highlighting things no one was reading and then just saying how stupid they are. And it serves no purpose. And so this is what I said. I said, the quoted tweet is foolish. It had two retweets and six likes. The criticism tweet has 300 retweets and 1,000 likes. If criticism amplifies the original message this many times over, what purpose does it serve? And then I said, some Twitter accounts make a career out of doing this, drawing attention to a nonsense tweet that no one was paying attention to, to mock it. The most common topic is alternative medicine. I invariably agree with the criticism, of course. This bullshit water is bullshit. But I think it's mostly signaling. And then I say this, it takes zero intelligence to highlight some fringe health view and say it has no data. Take something within the canon of medicine and critically appraise it. Of course, that is actually challenging and puts yourself at risk. And then I went further. I said one of these days I'm going to call out all the accounts that make a career of trashing easy trash topics and offer no insight whatsoever. They do build large followings, though. And then I cite an article that we wrote recently, which is called On Life and in Twitter, Aim to Persuade the Swing Voter. And and I think my, my criticism here is, is several fold. One, you know, you're amplifying something just to say it's a stupid idea. And that's really probably not serving your interest, which is to curb bad ideas in the world. Two, I believe it's disingenuously motivated that people doing this realize that this is an easy way to generate a lot of retweets and likes and followers, and that's why they're really doing it. Three, uh, this is really preaching to the choir, the kind of people who follow these accounts that always continually dunk on, you know, foolish alternative and complementary practices. Um, they're people who don't like those practices, and the people who do like those practices are not going to follow these accounts. They're not, minds aren't going to get changed in this way. Three, you know, if you call something, you know, a string of expletives, that's not really a good way to persuade somebody who is on the fence. If there's any such person on the fence on this issue, um, you know, uh, reading these accounts. And this line of thinking reminded me of a really lovely article that was written many years ago in Scientific America. It was called Dear Skeptics, Bash, Homeopathy, and Bigfoot Less, Mammograms, and War More. It's by John Horgan. A science journalist takes a skeptical look on skepticism. This is what John Horgan argues. He writes, you know, There are many people out there who are self-labeled skeptics, critical thinkers, believers in evidence, but, he writes, quote, you don't apply your skepticism equally. You're extremely critical of belief in God, ghosts, heaven, ESP, astrology, homeopathy, and Bigfoot, and you also attack disbelief in global warming, vaccines, and genetically modified food. These beliefs and disbeliefs deserve criticism, but they are what I call, quote, soft targets. That's because for the most part, you're bashing people outside your tribe who ignore you. You end up preaching to the converted. Meanwhile, you neglect what I call hard targets. These are dubious and even harmful claims promoted by major scientists and institutions. In the rest of the talk, I'll give you example of hard targets. And he talks very broadly about science, but one example in medicine he cites, of course, is mammography, which is something that is very complex, is oversold, does have serious downsides, and has not had the commensurate public health benefits that we thought we were embarking on. And in the next episode of Plenary Session, we're going to get H. Gilbert Welch on this podcast to talk more about this issue. And he writes, quote, now let's take a look at medicine, not the soft targets of alternative medicine, but the hard target of mainstream medicine. And he's right. And 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 I kind of doubled down on this with a, with a little analogy that, you know, ended up rubbing some of these skeptics the wrong way. And this is my analogy. Dunking on alternative medicine is setting the hoop to seven feet and pretending to be Michael Jordan. Critiquing costly multi-billion dollar mainstream medical practices with unproven evidence base is raising it back to 10 feet. Do what you wish, but only one is worth anyone's time. And I think the analogy hits the nail on the head. Um, These are people who have trained to get MDs, which is an arduous task. You've learned the skill. You're constantly exposed to medical practices of dubious evidence base in 
the hospitals and clinics that you preside in. This is a tribe of people for whom reason and evidence are germane. They are able to be persuaded by better evidence, better reason, better randomized control trials. This is where you got to take your talents and your energy. We spend trillions of dollars in healthcare. We spend billions of dollars in alternative medicine. There's another difference, of course. When it comes to many alternative and complementary practices, mostly people are spending their own money. When it comes to conventional medicine, we are obliging society to spend this money through insurance premiums and a number of taxation schemes. We are really imposing a higher burden on society. The, the costs are greater. The challenge is greater. It requires a greater use of your intellect to actually go after what really counts, which is the hard targets of conventional medicine. That's where we need the skeptics. We have multi-billion dollar a year subspecialties with very little clinical trials willing to test sacred cows in that field. This is where we desperately need trainees to go into. We need more critical thinkers, more skeptics for the hard targets. Instead, there are so many accounts that just make a career of debunking pseudoscience online. And, and they're not debunking it. They use the word debunking. Debunking, what debunking? You just say something is stupid, it's dumb. The people who hold those beliefs are stupid, they're dumb. You're just dunking on it. You're not actually debunking. And what are you going to say when you debunk? There's not much to say here. There is no credible clinical evidence that many of these, most of these things improve any clinical outcome. That's all you need to say. There's no clinical evidence. And the pathophysiology is muddled. The preclinical studies are muddled. There's no interest in testing it because it's got a muddled biology and it's got a muddled rationale. And that's not to say that the drugs we're developing are so much greater. We have drugs entering the pipeline with very low pretest probability, irreproducible basic science, but at least that's a step above what's going on in so much of the homeopathy and alternative medicine, you know, juggernaut. At least we're a little bit better, but we're not perfect. We are slightly better in terms of our pretest probability, but at least we're better in terms of our final assessment. Although, again, we have a lot of room for improvement. And, and you're not debunking this. You're not teaching people some erudite principle of when and when not to study alternative medicine. It's just a string of insults. And every day I go on Twitter, I just read more and more dogged insults, insulting the people who hold those views, and, and, and just kind of scoring points and trying to build up RTs and follows and those kinds of things. And I think we all see it. And so many people have told me over the years that... You know, it, it, it's it's as easy to dunk on alternative medicine as it is to criticize somebody who believes in a flat earth. It's no challenge and it requires no skill. And it's really not truly courageous because you're not willing to put yourself out there. You're not willing to put yourself on the line in your own profession. And the fact that some of these people are anonymous really is just so obnoxious. I mean... There is no courage in having an anonymous account on Twitter. We don't even know you're a doctor. We just know that you're somebody who doesn't want to be held accountable for what you're saying on Twitter. That's all it is in being anonymous on Twitter. And if you have real courage, you'll come out publicly. And then I've heard somebody say, well, you know, then somebody's going to complain to my boss about my whatever critical views of whatever topic. I say, well, welcome to the real world. People complain to your boss when they hear something you, they don't like. That's the real world. And courage is the ability to withstand such things and to take it. And wait till the future episode on Gil Welsh. We'll touch on that topic. Somebody told me that the uh, this alternative medicine industry is a $4 trillion industry. Okay, $4 trillion? Come on, it's not a $4 trillion. It's like they cite some blog post on some website of 
equally poor methodologic value as the alternative studies that they're critiquing. It's a lousy data. It's not a $4 trillion a year industry. That is not plausible. Um, it, it included, even in the brief, you know, skimming of this blog post that I that I found that claimed it was a $4 trillion a year industry, uh, uh, that it included a lotion that was spent for dry skin, which I don't think anyone thinks of as uh, alternative or complementary medicine or wellness or whatever. So uh, that figure is vastly inflated. Uh, the real figure is it's not nothing. It's in the tens or hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, but it's small when compared against the amount of money we spend on conventional health care. And it lacks the, 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 the fundamental structural dissimilarity, which is that people are choosing to spend this money, which, of course, they're ill-informed and they could be led you know, towards seeing the light. Uh, but when it comes to conventional medicine, we are all compelled by by fiat to subsidize this care for for others, and that is a societal action done uh, out of the belief that this care is really working, and a lot of it probably isn't. A lot of people push back and say, well, can't you do both? You're so critical. Well, can't you do both? But come on. There are time limits in life. You have to pick what you devote your energies to. And if you really want to engage in substantive critique of the hard targets of mainstream medicine, you have to educate yourself, become better at statistics, become better at reading protocols, become better at understanding clinical trials. And you got to pick and choose your battles and you can't waste all your time arguing with people who do not accept evidence and rationality as a precondition to debate. You're wasting your time. And the empirical fact is that these people who are making a pastime or a career out of dunking on alternative medicine, they are not spending considerable amount of time advancing the field of of skepticism towards mainstream medical practices. They're wasting their time. So, you know, like I said, do what you want, but we all know what this is. This is lowering the basketball hoop to seven feet and just dunking. And we all did that when we were growing up. But at some point, when you want to play ball, you raise it back up to 10 feet and you have a real game. Get some challenge in your life. And we need the next generation of physicians to know this. I want to say this. Why am I saying this? Why am I wasting my time saying this? We need the next generation of physicians to know that they ought to be going after the hard targets in medicine. They ought to raise the hoop back up to 10 feet. Think about all of the orthopedic surgeries that are being performed annually, all of the surgeries that are being performed annually, all of the medical practices that lack robust evidence. How many of them, how many of them are practices for which we may have equipoise? How many of them could be tested in randomized control trials? What would the power calculations look like? How long would it take to enroll? Let's push our actual profession forward. Many of these people who claim that they spend time both debunking pseudoscience and conventional science, they've written nothing about their own clinical practice. How can you be a surgeon? How can you be a dermatologist? How can you be a cardiologist and not encounter anything in your practice for which you have doubt and think Perhaps this is something that we should look into, investigate, do a clinical trial of. What are my main points here? My main points here are there are soft targets and there are hard targets. Hard targets are within your profession. There are things that get very little discussion. There are very few people talking about. They're not going to get you all the retweets and follows that soft targets will. There are soft targets out there, things we all know are crazy. Hydrogen water curing cancer, that tweet that no one was retweeting and no one was reading. That's an easy, soft target. This person went out of their way to find that tweet, to retweet it. I 
even suspect or fear. This person may even Google. Some of these people may even search or Google for crazy fringe alternative views just to give them something to tweet about. Their primary purpose is just to rally the troops, to build, to rally the base, build a tribe of people who think this is so important. Um, and, and they're not actually successful in converting the minds of different people because those people aren't tuning in. And if they were tuning in, they wouldn't want to be insulted with a litany of insults. Moreover, some of these people may not be responsive to a 50-page blog post uh, arguing the 502 reasons why acupuncture doesn't work as well as you think it works. Uh, they don't have the time or interest or inclination. Survey after survey suggests the motivation of many people who pursue such a thing is not, in fact, that they're looking for what what practice has the best available evidence, uh, but rather some other discontent with conventional medicine. Anyway, I want to put that aside. Uh, spending your time combating soft targets is not what you ought to aspire for if you're training. You got to go after the hard targets. We are spending trillions of dollars versus billions of dollars, not four trillion dollars, trillions of dollars versus billions of dollars on these differences. The way in which the money is allocated is fundamentally different. The group of people who are engaging in conventional medicine are a group of people who subscribe to rationality and evidence. They can be persuaded. They can be cajoled. Payment mechanisms can be changed. There are a number of mechanisms by which traction can be achieved on this issue. People will always buy products for all sorts of reasons that they think are interesting, from knickknacks they put on the shelf to things they wear on their wrist. And they may believe some of them makes their wrist pain better. And they may believe some of the knickknacks on the wall make them smile when they walk in the room. And you could spend your life arguing with them on all these issues, but you're not going to achieve any traction. And it's not where you should be spending your efforts. You spent a lot of time developing a skill set that few people have, which is understanding a technical topic in medicine. And what you ought to do with that skill set is look with in the profession for the massive amount of unproven, untested, contradicted medical practices driven by profoundly skewed financial interests and tackle those topics. That's what's worth your time. That's what will make the world a better place. The people who are mostly doing it on Twitter are mostly doing it in a low quality way, just like this. Quote tweet, hydrogen water. Did you know hydrogen water has been studied as a cancer reducer? Doc bastard. No, it hasn't. No, it doesn't. Your ebook is bullshit. Your hydrogen water is also bullshit. You're in violation of the Cancer Act and delete your account. That is a stupid tweet. It persuaded nobody. It amplified the message of this crazy thing. It earned almost 2,000 likes. Uh, it is a waste of time. It's a total waste of time. And that's what many, many people in this space are doing. I don't want to say all. But I want to say many, many, many people are not that different from this. That's all they're doing. They're wasting their time doing this. They're not looking in their field. There are limits to what you can do. There are soft targets and there are hard targets. And some are more important than others. And a final note. A final note on this topic, of course, is the thorny issue of the anti-vaccine movements. And I think that's a very important issue that requires a, a, a great deal of, of policy metrics. But again, angry tweets on the internet ain't going to solve that problem. What is going to solve that problem is likely a strong investment in research methodology towards combating disinformation, including prospective randomized trials on what it's going to take to correct uninformed beliefs, uh, not just preaching on the internet about it. Two, it will likely also require legislative changes such as compulsory uh, vaccination programs or school admission that's contingent on vaccination, a number of legal efforts that have been defeated in a lot of state legislatures in recent years. So it's a lot easier to go on and to just tweet about it. It's a lot harder to actually find the pressure points in the system and how you can actually achieve meaningful change. And I think that's a very important topic. But that is not 
your hydrogen water. That is not the cupping that these people tweet about. That is not, you know, whatever else they want to talk about. That's a very distinct problem. And we should not conflate the two. So, you know, you're free to do whatever you want to do. Last thought. You know, many years ago, I met a professor and I was tell the professor all the health policy papers I did. And this person was somebody who ran a lab. And he said, well, you know, you publish a lot of papers, but you don't engage in scholarship because scholarship is running a lab. And I said, well, that person is incorrect. That person is wrong. And I continue to do what I do because it didn't bother me one bit. I thought it was, in fact, kind of humorous that this person viewed the world that way. And this person probably articulated the unspoken belief by some people who run labs. You know, fair point. Similarly, I articulated my belief that people engage in targeting repeatedly soft target skepticism, spending almost no time dealing with the hard targets and, and building large followings and amplifying things no one is reading. And I said that they're wasting their time. That's not real scholarship. It's not really a meaningful activity. It's, it's a suboptimal way of spending your time. That's what I said. And how do they respond? Do they respond the same way I responded to this lab guy who told me that the only thing counts is lab work? No. They responded with a lot of anger. It really got under their skin. Days after I said this, I'm still getting notifications and tweets. Then continue to argue. No, this is important. This really counts. This is important. This really counts. You're wrong. Days and days later, many, many people continue to keep going at it. What's the difference here? When somebody tells you something that you in your heart of hearts know is not true, like this lab guy telling me that policy work is unimportant, I knew in my heart it wasn't true. I lost zero sleep about it. I knew he was wrong. I was misinformed. But when somebody tells you something that you know is true, that hits you in the core, you know you're not really looking at hard targets. You know you're not spending the time. You know you're going for the easy, cheap, seven-foot dunks on soft targets because that's easy to do. You don't got to read too much to know that this hydrogen water is not going to do, it's not going to cure cancer. You don't need to be an expert to know that. And when somebody says that that's not really working at the top of your license, that's not what you ought to be spending your time on, and you know deep inside that's true, that's when you get bothered. That's why you go day after day, keep pinging me as if I care uh, that you disagree with me. <laughs> so that's the difference. On that positive note, we're going to go after a hard target, which is what listeners of this podcast should aspire to do. So planners, when you get out there in the world and you're attending physician, go after the hard targets. And on the next segment, we're going to talk about smoldering myeloma and a hard target. Stay tuned. All right, now one of the hard targets. Randomized trial of lenalidomide versus observation in smoldering myeloma. This is the ECOG study. This was published in the JCO Online First Rapid Communication. It's being hailed as practice changing. Unfortunately, it's not. It's not practice changing. That's, that's what pains me to say. And actually, it's a trial that really, you know, was well designed and 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 had the potential to really shed a lot of clarity in a space. It really was a good study. Um, but unfortunately, it will never be a good study because patients have been crossed over to the investigational agent and will be incapable of answering what it was supposed to answer. So let's get started. Let's talk about the randomized trial of lenalidomide versus observation in smoldering multiple myeloma. Well, you need to know a little factoid first. You need to know that on August 1st, 2013, in the New England Journal of Medicine, Maria Mateos and colleagues from Spain published lenalidomide plus dexamethasone for high-risk smoldering multiple myeloma. And that trial is what set this all off. So let's, let's give you some basics. Obviously, multiple myeloma is the most common cancer of the plasma cell. I like to hear people call it that because it's number one 
among cancers of the plasma cell. You can't be beat if you're a cancer of the plasma cell. This is number one. And it is a lethal and devastating and incurable and important cancer for which there have been a number of highly active drugs that have been developed over the last decade uh, that have, in many instances, improved overall survival. So it's actually a story of continual progress in oncology. It's a good story that we have new drugs like proteasome inhibitors, like IMIDs, uh, like anti-CD38 antibodies that actually do make a dent in this disease, even in prospective randomized control trials. Multiple myeloma is a very interesting blood cancer. For a long time, people didn't know whether or not multiple myeloma could arise de novo from nothing before, or did it always arise from one of these precursor conditions like monoclonal gammopathy of unknown significance? And that question was addressed in two really elegant paired papers, one of which was by Dr. Landgren and colleagues that appeared in Blood, that took blood samples among people who were being screened in the PLCO. And the authors had one clever insight, which was to say, some of these people will later develop multiple myeloma. If you looked back in time in their serum and screened them for MGUS, could you find MGUS? And they found MGUS universally, suggesting that MGUS was an obligate precursor for multiple myeloma. And this idea of de novo multiple myeloma did not really exist. And another group confirmed this finding around this time. Now, of course, this is a continuum of risk from MGUS to smoldering myeloma to high-risk smoldering myeloma, conditions for which there is no end organ damage with differing burden of plasma cells, different levels of skewed free light chains, a different amount of clonal plasma cell neoplasm that eventually tips over into what we consider multiple myeloma, which typically has end organ dysfunction. Although a couple years ago, the IMWG, the International Myeloma Working Group, expanded the definition of multiple myeloma to include people with very high plasma cell burden or very, very skewed light chains. Now, that inclusion for plasma cell burden does make some sense. It really does track with population data suggesting high risk in that group. The extremely skewed free light chain ratio, there were still some of those people who many years out had not yet progressed to florid multiple myeloma. So I think there's always been a little bit of debate there. But it's important to know that the diagnostic category was expanded over time. Now, what if you treated earlier? So we know that if you treat multiple myeloma with some of these active drugs, there are many situations, many trials that show improvement in overall survival. But what we don't know is whether or not the routine upfront treatment of smoldering myeloma or high-risk smoldering myeloma is superior to treating myeloma when it presents as myeloma. And so the important clinical question that's been asked in these two papers is an important philosophical question that extends to many cancers, which is, is early routine treatment in an asymptomatic condition superior to delayed treatment when a cancer becomes symptomatic, or in the case of myeloma, has end organ damage? And in other cancers, this has been tested in a different way. So lymphoma. There were randomized trials many years ago of chlorambucil versus observation in people with low-volume asymptomatic follicular lymphoma. And the primary endpoint of these studies was overall survival. And that was with the recognition that that's really the question we want to know. By treating people early in an asymptomatic state where you impose toxicity and therapeutic burden, do you lengthen their life over treating them when they do present in a symptomatic state and then you deploy the therapy? And what we learned in follicular lymphoma was that you don't. This has been tested in other contexts. There's an elegant study in colon cancer that looks at early asymptomatic metastatic disease versus delayed treatment. And this is a philosophical idea that really cuts across cancer, which is 
when do you know the routine treatment of an early asymptomatic, perhaps precursor or perhaps low volume condition is worth treating with a toxic anti-cancer drug versus treating that condition when it eventually develops in a fraction of people in whom it progresses, um, in the large fraction of people in whom it progresses to a worse condition? That's the philosophical question. So one question off the bat is, should you look at progression-free survival as the primary endpoint? And I guess I would say that even if you're a believer that progression-free survival is a useful endpoint in some circumstances and some settings, this isn't a great setting for that. This is a setting where almost as a tautological truth, progression-free survival will be better if you treat early. When you give active anti-cancer drugs to people with asymptomatic disease, you're going to knock down that disease and it's going to take longer before it becomes symptomatic. But you've exposed someone, on the other hand, to a therapeutic burden and the side effects of treatment. You've also potentially lost a weapon in your armamentarium, a lost and effective treatment that may no longer work as well in a latter line of therapy. So the first progression really isn't enough. It's not an appropriate endpoint. You need to know if survival is better. Is the routine upfront treatment of a condition you hitherto were not treating but observing better than treating that condition when it eventually developed as a symptomatic treatment in many people. And the bar for that is overall survival or if survival was the same improved health-related quality of life. But you gotta measure health-related quality of life for the duration of someone's journey with cancer, not just the very beginning. And that is what makes it a very challenging endpoint and that's what really makes overall survival the legitimate bar. So, enter the study by Maria Mateos and colleagues. This tested whether revlimid and dexamethasone was superior to observation in patients in Spain with smoldering high-risk multiple myeloma. And in fact, they found the primary endpoint of their study was achieved, that it delayed the time until progression, which really is an empty endpoint that doesn't really capture what we care about. It's really not surprising. It's nothing exciting. But what was exciting in that paper was that they also found it was associated with an overall survival advantage. And that is interesting. That's the right endpoint. But the study had a major problem. Quote, we calculated that a sample of 120 patients, 60 per group, would provide 80% power to detect a hazard ratio 0.54 for time to progression to symptomatic myeloma. In other words, it had an 80% power to detect a certain hazard ratio in symptomatic myeloma, but it didn't have an 80% power to detect an improvement in overall survival. I, I haven't calculated it myself, but I would be quite surprised if it had anything more than a 40% power to detect an improvement in survival with a hazard ratio of 0.6 or 0.7. I'd be surprised. It's extremely underpowered. It doesn't have the power you need to detect an improvement in overall survival. This is called power failure. It has a failure of power to detect the endpoint you actually care about. Why is that problematic? Of course, when you don't have enough power to run a study, you are more likely to get false negative results. You're likely not to find a difference when a difference exists. But what is underappreciated and underrecognized is that low power also means that when you find a statistically significant difference in the outcome, it's more likely to be a false positive than a true positive. The rate of false positive under low power is exaggerated. And if you really want to know why, you need to find the equation that looks at the relationship between the post-test probability that a study is true and the power and the pretest odds and the alpha error. And there's a nice paper called Power Failure by John Yonides and colleagues in, in one of the Nature Neuroscience journals that I believe will have the equation really walk you through it and give you some great examples. But it's important to know because underpowered phase two trials 
often generate spurious results, particularly for endpoints outside the primary endpoint. And if you need a recent reminder of that, think about Lartruvo or Laratumumab. That's a drug that showed a remarkable overall survival advantage in the phase two setting that was not replicated at all with overlapping survival curves in the phase three. So we know phase two trials are misleading, particularly when you're not looking at the primary endpoint. That's the statistical side of it. But there's another problem with the Spanish study, and that's that the treatments they used at the time of progression were not in line with the U.S. standard. They were using older drugs, older cytotoxic drugs, not the drugs we're using in this country. And thus, their study really tested whether or not the upfront application of Revlimid and dexamethasone was superior to really getting substandard at least by U.S. standards, care on the back end in an underpowered phase two that was not suited for overall survival. So what should you do with the overall survival results of the Spanish study? It's hypothesis generating. You should test it in a prospective phase three trial, but you can't hang your hat on it. It's underpowered and the post-protocol therapy was inappropriate in the control and doesn't reflect the U.S. standard of care. So that's why many of us did not change practice when the Mateos paper came out. And some people have even said, privately, that it's not really a trial of treating smoldering myeloma versus not treating it. It's a trial of treating high-risk smoldering multiple myeloma versus substandard care. That's what people talk about when they talk about this trial. So was the trial useful to do? That's that's an interesting question. Some people say it's useful because it showed that this was a tolerable treatment. But you know, that's not really surprising to me that you take people who are a little bit more fit than people who actually have the cancer, who don't have end organ damage that they do with the cancer, and you give them the same highly active drugs for the clonal proliferation, and you say, well, we learned it was well tolerated. Well, surprise, surprise, it probably was going to be well tolerated because those drugs are drugs you use for people who are sicker with end organ damage. So what do you think you're going to use when you give them to people who are a little bit more healthy? It's going to be well tolerated. I didn't learn anything there, although, you know, I do hear people saying that. Enter the ECOG study. The ECOG study was ingeniously designed. I mean, it's a good study. It had the right idea. They're not going to give them Lendex. They're just going to give them Lend. They're going to take high-risk smoldering myeloma patients. They're going to do appropriate MRI at baseline so they're not missing people who actually have myeloma. This is all good design. They're really asking the right question. Among a group of people in whom you otherwise wouldn't treat, is the routine upfront treatment superior to what we're going to do in the United States when they do eventually progress? They're asking the right question. And they even take that into account in their power calculation. Let me read you from their supplement, quote, with 180 patients accrued over 45 months and additional nine months of follow-up to achieve full information and postulate of 76 events, there's a 96% power to detect a hazard ratio of 0.40, and that's for the primary endpoint of PFS. Okay, that's a little bit of a mistake. It should have been OS. But why do they have a 96% power to detect a hazard ratio of 0.4 for PFS? And that's because of this. Quote, there was also adequate power, 81%, to detect a 60% reduction in the risk of death at a one-sided 2.5% significance level, assuming full event information, 47 deaths at 7.5 years, 90 months out. So in other words, they ingeniously built their study with 80% power to detect an overall survival advantage at a 90-month endpoint. And that is the beauty of the study. They had tons of power to find a PFS benefit, but that's not really what people cared about. They cared about the OS benefit, and they had adequate 80% power to detect a reasonable 60% reduction in the risk of death at not at 7.5 years. And you know, you got to know that by the time this study is published, it's been published, now we're already at about 35 months. So time was going to answer the question. So you know, it's a well-done study. I mean, I think they, they asked the right question, but they made one mistake. When they had six deaths so far on the trial, two in the LEN arm, four in observation, they faced the question, should we continue to observe 
Should we treat the patient with high-risk smoldering myeloma in the control arm? And they decided to treat him. That is a big mistake. They decided to treat those patients. Yeah. And so in other words, because they have treated the control arm at this point, they have washed away any potential to find or not find a survival advantage or disadvantage. They have neutered the trial from being able to render a verdict on overall survival. They have taken that away from the study. And that's what made me sad when I read that. I was deeply saddened to read that because that means that this study won't answer the question. And that means the only thing we're going to hang our hat on, not me, but other people will hang their hat on, is an incredibly ill-suited, underpowered trial from Spain that really wasn't appropriately designed to look at, very likely as rendering a spurious, false positive result for overall survival. It's going to let people have more credence. And that would be okay if this were a drug that didn't have massive side effects and didn't cost Hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollars per year of therapy, but it is a drug that's protected by REMS. It's going to get more exclusivity than the average drug. Celgene is charging twenty one k a month for this drug. Um, it's a toxic drug. It's a thalidomide derivative. It has a lot of administrative burden, um, and that means that this trial, I believe, unfortunately, has been turned into from a perfect study, from a really well-done, well-conceptualized study to really an unethical study. Because one of the prerequisites, ethical prerequisites of a study is a study has to be capable of answering a meaningful clinical question that will guide care. And now by crossing everyone over based on uh, an obvious endpoint, which is time to progression, which of course was going to be better if you give somebody an active drug, um, we have prevented and precluded the ability of the trial to answer a meaningful question. And thus, I believe, unfortunately, we rendered it unethical ethical trial. So should you change your practice based on this trial? Well, I'm going to read a little thread by Ben Derman. Um, he nicely hit on a few points. One, lead time bias. It's not surprising that treating patients early will delay progression. We are treating them. We have to think beyond progression too. Spot on. He really hits the nail on the head. Time to symptomatic progression. That really isn't isn't an appropriate primary endpoint. Um, only 11 out of 90 patients with placebo arm experience bony disease and eight out of nine renal failure progression. Also, we don't know the severity. He is really, really right on on this. We know that the primary endpoint was achieved in the following rates between the two arms. Bone, nine progressions in control versus three with LEN. Renal, three with control versus zero with LEN. Anemia, eight with control versus four with LEN. Hypercalcemia, one versus zero. What we don't know is how many of those people who had bone disease were found on their annual skeletal survey and how many of those people with bone disease actually presented with a painful fracture. What we don't know is how many people with renal dysfunction presented with diminishing GFR and yet still had an okay renal function, were able to get all the subsequent lines of therapy that you would want to give that person and how many of them actually required dialysis and lost the ability to use their kidneys. We don't know. The anemia one is really kind of a softer endpoint because you know often when you treat myeloma you can beat down the plasma cell clone, you can improve the anemia. And the hypercalcemia again that's something you can control. We don't know how bad it was, how symptomatic it was. Really we don't know to what degree the primary endpoint really constituted harm in these patients and whether or not that harm is outweighed by the harm of taking lenalidomide, which frankly isn't a walk in the park. So this is number three point by Ben Derman. Many patients discontinued lenalidomide, 30 out of 92 because of adverse events and 22 out of 92 because of withdrawal refusal, similar to experience with maintenance. The drug isn't always easy for patients. And he's right, because if you're taking the drug and you don't feel bad and the drug starts making you feel bad, you gotta ask yourself why you're taking the drug. Four, health-related quality of life wasn't worse with LEN, but it also wasn't better despite the fact they improved the PFS. So that's really the better metric, health-related quality of life and overall survival. Those are really the only true appropriate endpoints of this clinical study. Five, we predominantly saw partial responses. We're not getting the patients to CR and MRD negativity. Okay, six, 
These are Ben Derman's points, not mine. These are great points. Six, it'll be important to know which regimens patients receive when they progress. Absolutely, Ben. Absolutely. Because, one, you might have exhausted your ability to use LEN. Two, um, are they getting U.S. standard of care? Are they getting the kind of care you got in the Spanish study? That's a very important question, Ben. Excellent point. Number seven, overall survival comparison to trial may be dependent on subsequent regimens. Absolutely. Maybe, and then he says, maybe observation to, to RVD is superior to LEN to something else. He hits the nail on the head. He's absolutely right. That's the critical question. Critical, critical question. But we will never know because they let the people on the control arm cross over to therapy or to go on a study that only has active therapies in the arm. So we will forever not know that. And that's why I'm so sad. So sad when I read this study. Eight, if the argument is for treating high-risk smoldering, then we should take intensive curative approach. And I think that's another hypothesis worth discussing. Nine, should we consider reclassifying high-risk smoldering myeloma as multiple myeloma, as others have suggested? And I think that's a whole other can of worms. I wouldn't do that based on this trial. Uh, then you just give people RVD based on really no data. Uh, and then he writes, I slept on this and had two more thoughts. One, uh, what are you going to do about stem cell grafts? And that's a great point. Normally we collect after a few cycles at LEN, but now if you've got somebody taking LEN for years, what's going to be the yield of the stem cell graft? On the other hand, it's another tough question people don't want to ask, which is what is the role of auto and CR1 in the modern era with modern drugs? Does it actually confer an overall survival advantage? And we do not yet have that for the only study that's done in the modern era, to my knowledge. We have a lot of studies in the older era when we didn't have the drugs we have today that do show survival advantage to auto and CR1, but we don't have that in the CLGB uh, French study, the combined study to date yet, but perhaps we will someday. But I think we have to reassess with continual advances in therapy for myeloma, at what point do you put auto back on the question block? Do you ask, does an auto actually improve overall survival? And again, it's not PFS. PFS is not the appropriate primary endpoint here. When you get more therapy, when you extend the duration of therapy, when you move therapy up, when you impose a therapeutic burden, you guarantee toxicity. The only thing that justifies the upfront routine use of a drug in an asymptomatic population is a back-end OS or health-related quality of life benefit. Okay. That was fast talking. 11, what does this mean for frontline clinical trials? Might lend lead to ineligibility? That's a great point. And 12, others have rightly brought up the Spanish study, which showed OS benefit, but we must recall that patients also got DEX and could get DEX during maintenance. And also, that study's bad. They didn't really screen people for myeloma appropriately at the entry. They didn't give appropriate therapy on the back end. It's a small underpowered study. It really, they shouldn't be able to put that graph out there. They shouldn't be able to hang their hat on it. That study is oversold, oversold, and really should not be entering your considerations. I cannot say that more strongly. So this study, they follow patients monthly, and they actually did CBCs and chemistries and serum light chains monthly. Their protocol says that you will get imaging for bones every year, whether you're symptomatic or not, but it allows the doctor to look for bony disease more often if the doctor thinks that that's indicated. And so we don't have a sense of how many people present with bony disease presented with painful fractures, how many people presented with painful fractures, but when they actually got treated on the control arm, those pain went away and actually they didn't have to deal with any long-term sequela of, of really severe bone damage. How many people had reversible or, or largely treatable bone lesions? How many people had that? Last thought before I, before I give my final thoughts on the study. There's one line in the study that really sticks out it's like a sore thumb in the writing. And, and the writing is excellent here. And there is no medical writer to my knowledge. Quote, it is also possible that although a small fraction of patients may be cured with more aggressive therapy early, an operational cure with prevention using less intensive therapy may net similar endpoints without the toxicity of standard therapy. They really should not be using the word cure here. I mean, I think that's really inappropriate um, to call this or even hint that this is an operational cure is extremely premature. So that's the only thing I didn't really like about, about 
the writing. And I also didn't like the reverence for the Spanish study uh, because it really is not well-suited. It was ill-suited to look at overall survival, and you really cannot really look at that in that study. It had nothing to do with overall survival. Even this study didn't have the primary endpoint of overall survival, but to their credit, it was a secondary endpoint. They had 81% power to detect a 60% reduction at a 90-month OS endpoint. Okay, overall thoughts. This was the right study to do. It was the best laid study. It, ha- it made sense. It was the right clinical study to launch. It was the study I wanted to see. It was the boat that set sail out of the harbor that I wanted to see have a successful passage. But along the way, there was mutiny on the ship, and the boat was commandeered and was taken in a different direction, and all patients were crossed over after the primary endpoint was reached. And for that reason, the study has been neutered. It's been rendered unable to affect a firm verdict on the clinical question that mattered. And we won't know the answer. And other ongoing ECOG studies will test Revlimid versus Darevlimid. We're just going to open Pandora's box in the sense we're just going to be treating this condition. We're not going to know if people live longer or live better lives as a result. We don't have the health-related quality of life benefit. We don't know how symptomatic these events were. We don't know if those symptomatic benefits in the progression primary endpoint are offset by the toxicity of the therapy. We don't know what it means for OS. We don't even know if OS is perhaps goes the other direction, if there's a decremental effect because of using effective drugs and, 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 and the tumor becoming resistant to that. We don't know the answer to these questions. So all in all, I think this study is a sad study. It makes me sad. And I, and I, really, wanted, I really wanted to follow this study in 90 months, and I really wanted to know the answer, and I'm not going to get to know the answer. And, and I'm probably not going to know the answer for the rest of my career. And so I'm going to have 20 years where, you know, over time, with the way the financial incentives are in the myeloma space, the high cost of these drugs, how deeply conflicted the majority of the KOLs are in this space, the way Celgene and other companies are going to push their products, um, I think it's, it, we're, we're just going to see treatment. It's going to start with high-risk smoldering, but obviously it's going to be extended to smoldering. Now that we've set that the bar of PFS is sufficient to demonstrate, um, uh, to, to change practice, we're just going to see more of that. Um, soon, someday, somebody might have the, the sheer audacity to start treating patients with MGUS. And, you know, someday, um, if in a perfect world, we'll get a new image that still has a full patent life, and we'll get a new REMS so we can game the patent for another couple decades. And then we're going to do the Holy Grail trial, which is a randomized control trial of healthy people who don't yet have myeloma. And we're going to randomize them taking an IMID once daily versus not taking it. And the primary endpoint is going to be time to MGUS. And we're going to kick out time to MGUS by about 2.3 years and people over the age of 70. And we're going to be able to give every single person a costly $500,000 a year therapy because by then we're going to jack up the price because prices aren't going down. But I tell you this, uh, science fiction horror story where the future is headed and I don't think it's going to go all the way there but I do think we really moved in the wrong direction and we missed a crucial moment in history where a clinical trial could have helped us answer the right question and it didn't the ship was commandeered it was turned the other way we don't get the information we need doctors will treat patients because the way in which the system is built is that um, marketing and hype will drive these decisions and not a crucial look at the evidence. And so, like I said, it's a cooperative group study. The industry didn't play much of a role. The industry donated the drug, but they did nothing else. And it's a sad way to see it. It's a sad way to see it. So I hope someday that there's a philanthropist or a payer, Blue Cross Blue Shield, redo this study. Do this study, crank up the sample size a little bit, 
So then you have you have an 80% power to detect this effect size in a shorter period of time. Crank up the power just a little bit. Set the only primary endpoint as overall survival. Do the right study because you will save potentially tens of billions of dollars over the next decade if you do the right study. I'm counting on you. Payers, get together. This is an opportunity to do the right study. Save us. Give me a chance. I don't want to go out my career 30 years from now, and I don't want to not know the answer to this question. I want this question answered in my career. I'm hoping, I'm praying that we'll get there. So on that positive note, we turn to our interview. I'm back in plenary session HQ with Dr. Andy Sultz. Andy Sultz is running for state representative in the House of Representatives here at the state legislature in Oregon. He's my very first politician that I've gotten on the podcast, and I'm thrilled to have him here. Um, let me give you a little bit of a background. Andy Sultz, of course, is a Portland native, um, and his father, some listeners may know, was the chairperson of family medicine here for many years, and a very distinguished figure here on the campus of OHSU. Andy Saltz did his undergraduate at Oregon State. He went on to do a master's at Lewis and Clark University here in Portland. Then he went to a place that's near and dear to my heart, Michigan State University, where he did his PhD in education policy. He's back here on the faculty at Pacific University. And he's applying for state legislature, which to my knowledge is a, is a sort of a part-time position. So he'll continue to be a professor as well as hopefully a state legislature. Andy, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Really appreciate your time. It's a pleasure to have you here. I'm thrilled to have a real politician here. Well, I, I, I must stop you there. I, I, wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't claim to be a politician. I'm a professor who wants to get involved in policy, so I in see. politics. Well, that's a start. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. I went through the, uh, the candidates for the presidency, and I called them all up, and I said, uh, you know, no luck there. So I was like, which, which, which <laughs> political figure can I get in here? No, but I thank you so much for coming here, and uh, I, I hope that listeners will enjoy our discussion. Um, so I guess I, I was wondering, maybe maybe I'll let you take the lead and just give listeners a little bit about your background and and then to kind of just to say why you're interested in, in running for this seat, which is the open seat of the the now retiring Mitch Greenlake, who maybe you can tell listeners about Mitch Greenlake, too. Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in northwest Portland and went through the Beaverton School District. I graduated from Sunset High School and started dating uh, my girlfriend at the time, uh, Jenny Davis, who is now my wife and works actually here at OHSU uh, and does bone marrow transplants here. And we are raising our two kids in the neighborhood we grew up in and really love that part of, of our city. Mitch Greenlick has represented House District 33 for about 20 years and has uh, extensive background in public health. Mm -hmm. I know he worked here at OHSU and is really interested in policy to improve people, kind of the public health uh, component of policy. And so uh, he is retiring. He's uh, 84 now. And really, I did never really saw myself as as wanting to run for office. I was a high school social studies teacher and Mm -hmm. loved every minute of it. Uh, maybe you can remember your high school social studies class learning about government and, and arguing about this or that and, and really enjoyed my time. But I got really interested in policy because as a teacher, I felt like my voice wasn't uh, being represented in politics. And so I went back to school at Michigan State, got the ed policy PhD and ran for my local school board. And so I thought, well, if teachers aren't represented, maybe I want to be that voice for teachers. Uh, this was during the Great Recession. And you may have heard Michigan had a little bit of a rough time in the recession. Mm-hmm. I remember. And so I learned I learned quite a bit about local government and budgeting in particular. We had a 12 percent budget cut followed by a 10 percent budget cut in back to back years, which was really rough. 
so then I've, I've been a professor of ed policy and really studying school systems. And the more time I spend thinking about education, the more I realize that all policy is really interconnected. So if we want to improve student learning, we have to make sure that they're getting their basic needs met, whether that's uh, a safe place to sleep at night, uh, food on the table, or increasingly uh, health problems as well. We're seeing a number of folks with asthma, for example, not being able to to go to school as frequently. And uh, mm-hmm. as you know, communities of color have higher rates of asthma. So mm-hmm. that's just one example of how these policies are really interconnected. With how health and education go together. Mm-hmm. And where where were you teaching when you before you went to your PhD program? Where were you a teacher? So I taught in mid-Michigan. Oh, okay. um, Jenny went to med school at Michigan State, as you uh-huh. know. And so I went to Oregon State, fell in love with teaching, and went right into a master's program at Lewis and Clark uh-huh. uh, to get a master's in teaching social studies. And then my first job out of grad school was in mid-Michigan in a town called Okemos, which is oh, I know a, neighbor, yeah. a neighborhood community of East Lansing. I see. Um, and taught high school there for a couple of years before going back to school. I see. And how did you find the Okemos community? Because it's kind of a mixed community. There's children of faculty professors at Michigan State University, but there's also people who live in Okemos who have no connection to the university. So you probably had maybe a range of students in your class? Yeah, and as you can imagine, as a social studies teacher, finding a job is challenging, particularly in, in the Great Recession. Michigan State produces a lot of teachers, and so when we moved out there, I knew nobody in the state and applied broadly mm-hmm. and really got lucky in landing in a tremendous district with some great families who were really supportive of education. I see. And it sounds like to me, like what motivates you to take an interest in policy is that in the course of your of your work and of your education, uh, you felt like it was inevitable that, you know, if you wanted to kind of roll up your sleeves and improve upon the challenges you were seeing, that, you know, it's not enough to just sit on the sidelines. You got to get in there and let your voice be heard. Is that fair to say? It is. And and one of the parallels between your work and mine is is we have a focus on really looking at data to make decisions. Mm -hmm. And I have become increasingly concerned with our political system where politics takes the priority, not data, in terms Mm -hmm. of informing what we should be doing. And so I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old son and really am trying to build the future that they deserve. Mm -hmm. And I worry about our environmental policy, our health policy, and our education policy being driven more by politics than than data. And I guess I, I... That really strikes a chord with me, obviously, because I think that, um, you know, what I think is interesting is there are some political questions which are how do we prioritize different things or what is the goal of government? What should government even do in our lives? Um, But you largely hear rhetoric uh, agree about those things. At least the stated rhetoric is that we all agree the role of government is to make sure people have equitable access to a good education. The role of government is to make sure people have equitable access to good health care. So they say they agree. Um, And if you say you agree, I would think you'd want to follow the data in terms of what's the best way to achieve that. Um, What is the best way to have equitable access to education or health care? And when you see, perhaps some parties more than others, pursuing policies that would not achieve the stated goals, it means one of two things are true. Either they don't believe that data. Um, or they're very ignorant towards how to understand data. And I think there's probably some truth to that because some of these people probably are ignorant. They are not trained in understanding data. Um, Or the other thing that might be true is that some groups of people say the goal is universal health care or education, but that's not really what they want in their heart. They have another goal, which might be not having to spend so much in taxes. And and, and I guess that's, that's the only way I can look at it. I don't know. How do you think about it when you see people 
because there's, I don't think there's anyone in this country who's ever run for any office who said, I don't believe kids should have a good education, <laughs> sure. right? Yeah. And yet some people are enacting policies that will ensure that doesn't happen. Yeah, I think I think the competing goals is an important point mm-hmm. and that everyone will sit here and say we believe in public education, we believe that, you know, we shouldn't have 22,000 homeless children in Oregon, for example. I think tax policy is part of it. The other frame I would put on it is I think a lot of people are politically ambitious and there is a lot of money and power in our state that is trying to keep the status quo. Mm-hmm. So the second you say, I want uh, a single payer system, for example, or a public option, mm-hmm. then the insurance industry, hospital industry, and others say, well, what does that mean for our bottom line? Mm-hmm. And we have largely business folks who are hired to maximize the bottom line in these industries. And so if, if you have a lot of money and power and influence, you're worried about losing those things, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And mm-hmm. so I, I think that would be the third frame I would put on this, That's is that point. politicians want to advance their careers and uh-huh. as a result are getting uh, influenced by individuals with power and money and influence. I see. Uh, and that's a great point. So that the politician may say, when I started out, um, yes, indeed, I did believe that we ought to have broad education. We had to have equitable health care. But I will not be able to build the coalition I need to keep myself in this seat uh, unless I am willing to be flexible. And at some point, you know, there's a line between flexibility and like capitulation. You've mm-hmm. given up all your beliefs and you're just an empty suit. Um, and And I guess that's probably part of the reason why it's so important that there is new blood continually injected into politics because probably when people are starting out, um, they're less likely to be in that cynical mode of what it takes to keep myself in office and maybe more likely to actually say, you know, I, we just have to do some stuff. I, I think so. I mean, I, I'm pretty idealistic still. Yeah. Good. And I also feel like I have a wonderful job. I mean, being a professor is a great job and I love working with doctoral students, doing research. And so I think I can influence things and drive the, the discussion about, around data and what's best moving forward. I also, this isn't my life goal to advance in politics. This is an opportunity I think that we can improve our state in substantial ways. But I I think that's important. The the, the last piece I would just say in terms of why things don't necessarily get better in health policy or ed policy, these are really complicated things. Mm -hmm. And so a, a fourth hypothesis might be people want to do the right thing. They literally don't know how to fix public Mm -hmm. education or our healthcare system, which is so convoluted that I think even well-intentioned folks don't know the what of policy. That's an excellent point. And then what are your feelings on the issue of, you know, and I guess, and I'll admit that I'm not an expert on this question, is that because I spend so much time thinking about national policy issues, but you are somebody who's immersed himself in local policy issues. And my understanding from people who sort of looked at this issue empirically is that it, it may not be sexy to talk about local policy, but it's incredibly important. And local policy often has a huge role in the lives of everyday people day in and day out. And so we get stuck on national policy issues and we ignore the things well within our reach, the things in our city and our state. Is that how you feel about local policy? Do you think it, for at least for education, does it matter more than national policy? Because I'm stuck in the healthcare bubbles where yeah. I'm always thinking national policy, national sure. policy. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the state 
the state and local government, it drives most of ed policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the vast majority of funding, about 85% of funding is local and state funding. There's some special education funding from the federal government, uh, funding for free and reduced price lunch, things of that nature. But the vast majority of policy is driven at the state level for education policy. And, and I would say, I mean, Medicaid and the CCO experiment here in Oregon has given the state an opportunity to influence things. Yeah. Obviously, that's a small percentage of of healthcare spending, but I wonder the degree to which states can really experiment there and try to learn of alternative models. Yeah, and and I think that fits with, um, you know, you of course are running as a Democrat in the Democratic primary, um, but one of the things you've heard Republicans say for many, many years is that states are the laboratory of experiment, that um, we ought to let states have freedoms to try things out. And, and part of what that means is that a state like Oregon may, in fact, experiment and, and do some good things that can inform other states. Uh, and yet, of course, I've been critical of the fact that, you know, although you hear the rhetoric states of the laboratory experiment, um, some of the particular policy decisions made by this administration, CMS, have restricted the ability for states to, um, you know, change things to Medicaid budgets and actually restrict the coverage of these super costly, very marginal drugs. So if they really believed it, that's not what they're acting like. You know, it, it seemed their actions suggest an administration that wants to ensure the profit margins of entrenched interests. Um, so I guess I, I, I guess do you think like a state like Oregon could be a leader for other states? I do think Oregon could be a leader. And I think back to the 1990s and Governor Kitzhaber what they tried to do with the Oregon Health Plan, have a true discussion about what are we going to prioritize and why. Mm-hmm. The challenge with healthcare policy, in my opinion, is there is a zero-sum game with resources. We are spending almost 20% of our GDP. And so the discussion yeah. has to be what what is necessary and what is not necessary and what are the consequences if we decide everything is necessary and we're going to try to pay for it all? The consequences are we can't pay for other social services that we believe in that we know are important social determinants of health. Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I agree with you so much, which is that, you know, you spend 20 percent of GDP on healthcare, nearly double uh, any other Western industrialized nation, which often boasts better life expectancy and lower infant mortality than this country. And, and people will say, well, what's the problem with that? You know, what else do you want to spend your money on? Movie tickets and popcorn, you know? Of course we spend on health. That's something that's important to people. But I think the point you're making that's very astute is that you're spending money on a particular type of health care, which is the administration of very costly, perhaps marginal, in some cases unproven medical devices and drugs at the ends of life. And what you're not investing in is the early part of life. And there's a number of studies that have come out over and over again, we can maybe talk about some of them, that suggest that those investments in early life have huge health implications for citizens well into the future. And so what you're really doing is you're putting money in a way that it could be better spent. You could actually improve health to a greater degree had you invested in these other things. But we don't see that when we're caught up in this healthcare industrial complex kind of situation. And, and there are parallels with education there. Yeah, tell me about that, that. That we end up focusing on students' dropout prevention in high school or remediation in the college level when people go to college and it's can't too late. complete you know, 100 level yeah. math classes. If we invested in, in pre-K, you can, it, the, the predictive measure of a student's ability to read in third grade is tremendous for their their future earnings, for their high school graduation, for a lot of these things. And so the parallel here with healthcare is if we can spend upstream on prevention, on primary care, 
then then we aren't in a situation where we're always trying to play catch up. And I worry sometimes in our society, we're always trying to play catch up. We're trying to solve yesterday's problem rather than anticipate what we'll need for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a really dangerous financial position to be in, but also political situation. And that's well put. And um, one question that, that this comes to mind is that, um, you know, you're somebody who cares about data and, 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 and using the best available data to, to achieve your stated goal in probably the most parsimonious and cost-effective way. Um, and, and yet I do think they're on the right, of course, there's often resistance to that, and you see like a number of ways in which the policies just defy all sense and all available data. Uh, I, I see it to some degree on the left as well, and where I see it is like something like an issue like charter schools, where um, you know you, you see a reluctance from candidates to say that we're willing to even support charter schools as even an experiment. But I guess I would say that you know I grew I, I you know I grew up in public schools and and you went to public schools and and I guess I'd say that you know public schools can do a good job. But I guess if it were shown to me that, you know, sort of that in sort of a randomized experiment or a natural experiment that charter schools were able to deliver better education at lower price um, with improved flexibility, I guess I would say I I put data over politics. And so I'd say I'd have to embrace that as a solution. But you do see some resistance, I think, on, on the left on that issue. How yeah. do you think about that? So I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. Yeah. Uh, you asked me about ed research, yes. which is like my world. Yes. So I, I'm going to nerd out here for a second. Uh, do it. So, this is plenty research. This is so, what for. <laughs> so this is, this is an example of my mind being changed. Growing up, and when I was a high school teacher, I thought charter schools... Um, were the devil. Were, yeah, I, yeah. I mean... That's the, what I the, thought. I, yeah. I accepted the narrative that charter schools were not helpful. And then I went to grad school, and I, I really got into some of the research. And here's what I learned. Mm-hmm. Uh, first... Some of the research I have done has shown some charter schools exacerbate segregation. So I am of the belief that we should try to desegregate our schools. Our schools are largely segregated because our communities are segregated. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's good, really good for kids to have uh, mixed socioeconomic backgrounds as well as racial backgrounds uh, in schools. So that's mm-hmm. a concern. And uh, it's a legal precedent. I think that... Brown v. Board was supposed to desegregate schools, but in response, people just relocated in a way to preserve segregation effectively. Absolutely. Yeah. So the second thing I learned about charter schools was there's just wider variance. Mm-hmm. So when you deregulate something, you have individuals exploiting that. So charters have spent more on advertising, for example, and that's money that could be in the classroom. So that's a concern. I see. On the other hand, there are some charter schools that have shown increases, particularly in math scores. Math scores, for whatever reason, are easier to um, increase than than reading scores, which mm-hmm. rely more heavily on parents' education, for example. I see. Uh, and, and so some charter schools in communities of color, low-income communities of color, have shown really promising results. Mm-hmm. I tell people that white families, particularly white families with wealth, have school choice. They move into neighborhoods where they like the schools. And I think that we have to create a situation where regardless of your income level or racial demographics, you can be really excited and proud of the schools that you go to. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I guess that um, that's very well stated. And I think uh, it, it's great that you bring the data into this. And I guess I'd say, so then like what you're saying is that you are more wedded to what the data shows you than you are wedded to any a priori principle. Yeah. 
And I think that's very commendable. And that's, you know, I, I was like, I wish there was like a political party that was called like the data first party. <laughs> we, we can start it. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. But, but you know, like, like somebody who's saying that, like, look, I, we, we, these are what our, our end goals are. We want people to be able to get good education at, at least until the age of like 22. Um, and if that means vocational training, so be it. You know, we're not wedded to this idea that there's one right education path for everybody. We want people to be able to get good health care for their lifetime. We want people to be able to have safe roads and bridges and these kinds of things. But if you're going to come to me and you're going to say the best way to do that is a free market laissez-faire system and you have convincing data that that's the case, then I'm going to sign on. But if you're going to say it's going to be a partly regulated system, which is the way most of the world works, and if you're going to say that sometimes more regulation will actually improve things here, we're going to go with whatever the best available data says. You know, So these are our, our goals. And we're going to get there based on best available evidence. I, I love it. I love it. I know. I know. I was like, I was so, I, you know, I had so much one. You know, that, that's that's what I think is is needed. And I think that obviously, you know, one party is closer to that than the other party, um, because at least the stated goals are, I think, in line with what the preferences of most people are. Um, and I think they that one party is the D party, and of course that you know they more are likely are um, going where the evidence goes. Um, well, so, and, and yeah. I would add on to that, one of my frustrations in politics, and maybe it's just me, is if I say I have a stance today, 20 years from now, I will be held to that. I know, that's like, crazy. The, the researcher in me says, okay, if I change my mind because of a convincing reason. You're a smart person. Then we should be okay with that. We yeah, should celebrate the fact that it's like, you know, knowledge, we're accumulating knowledge. Like, that's part of what the academy does. We're learning things we didn't know. And if we're learning things we didn't know, and there's a new new drug that doesn't work as well as we thought it did or, or something, I mean, I mean, I think we have an obligation to adjust. And so I think the challenge there is, you know, the flip-flopper and some of the, some of the discussion about candidates, particularly at the national level. But it's like, well, wait a minute. Why are they changing is really, really important, not just if they changed. Right. And I guess... Um I want to come back to that about that aspect of politics, which is like the changing your mind part of it. But what about what do you think about the communicating part of it, which is um, policy decisions like this are complex. I mean, you study education policy. When you do a paper, you're spending hours, days, months, weeks working on this thing. Um, and then when you're asked on a stage, what's your view on topic X? What's sort of, an, you know, any incriminating stare. You have to give an answer in eight seconds. Uh, does that make sense? I mean, what what the, what do people want? Yeah. So with schools specifically, one of the parts of the campaign that I love the most, which I didn't think I would like, is knocking on doors. Mm-hmm. So we have knocked almost four thousand doors and um, are really trying to learn as much as we can from the community. And a lot of people say we care about public education, but they don't know beyond kind of a surface level about what that means or how they could improve things. So I hear a lot about class size, Uh, class size, particularly in Beaverton School District at the high school level. They're seeing classes of 46, 48 kids. It's like too many to learn properly. And and I don't know. I mean, my my courses as a social studies teacher were really discussion based. And so I worry with 48 how everyone's voice can be heard, Yeah, uh, how you can assign writing assignments and, and grade them in, in an appropriate time. And this is in Beaverton, nature. which is generally thought of as a wealthy, well-off suburb of Portland. Yeah, it's it's, it's a very nice school district. Yeah. And so I think it speaks to some of our structural problems. But to your point, I have eight seconds to say, I, I want to improve our public education system. <laughs> right, yeah. I've been a teacher, a school board member, a professor of ed policy. I, I've studied this stuff really in depth. Here's what I think we should do. The, the other thing I just want to mention that we haven't talked about yet 
I'm really passionate about mental health and the mental health of our kids in schools and out of schools has to be a priority. And I think that's another area of overlap between health and education policy. Mm -hmm. Um, And and by mental health, you mean both um, everything from depression to anxiety to attention deficit disorder to um, uh, uh, defiant behavior kind of uh, issues that, that challenge the youth these days? Yeah, they surveyed, they passed a big bill last session called the Student Success Act, which uh-huh. was a $1 billion tax increase for K-12 through funding. Uh-huh. And as part of that process, they asked students, what are you concerned about? What do you want from your schools? And, and you heard some of the predictable things, lower class size, uh, more school counselors. But one thing that really surprised me was the students, almost 80% of students reported that they experience anxiety on a regular basis. Hmm. Uh, we do not have uh, recommended ratios for school counselors or school psychologists. And so oftentimes those folks are not having, don't have the capacity to really make sure that every kid is getting what they need. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other component of mental health is suicide. Uh, teen suicide is on the rise and, and that's a issue that's near and dear to my heart. And so I think schools have an important part to identification and making sure students are, are being taken care of in that regard as well. I see. I was reading something recently about, maybe it was Switzerland, about how, um, you know, education goes up until the age of 16, at which point people are allowed a few branch points. And one thing is if you want to pursue vocational training, if you want to be a mechanic, you want to be a plumber, um, that's something that's respected. And it's a thought of as a, you know, a perfectly acceptable thing to do with your with your life. And, and even at the age of 17, people can get literally get your hands dirty uh, working on some of these projects, becoming, learning that skill, learning that apprenticeship craft. Um, and yet, in, you know, in our country, it's really sort of one particular type of education that dominates. And it's changed over the years since you and I have been to school, which is the arts, the humanities, the music. Those all get kind of shoved out of the curriculum. And the only thing that gets kind of driven is analytical thinking, math, science, um, you know, a particular type of, of, of the way in which we use our brain. But I guess I should make one aside. You know, we all know people in our lives who are like incredibly talented musicians or dancers or they're really good with their hands and they can fix things in a way that, you know, I would be just lousy at. Um, But that is not rewarded at all in our school system. Do you think about like, you know, a school system that is able to foster diverse talents uh, among people? Yeah, absolutely. And I, one of another joy of the campaign has been learning about the building trades Mm -hmm. and uh, the building trades have really high quality jobs with good benefits for individuals who want to work with their hands. I think we need to embed more of that within our schools so that students know about that. Uh, If you look at, I think I was looking at Germany, for example, individuals start apprenticeship programs when they're 16 to 18 years old. The -hmm. average age of someone starting an apprenticeship uh, in Oregon right now is like 25. Yeah. And so there is this gap about what options exist for people that I think schools could could provide and should provide to individuals so they know all their options. And then let me ask you about the, the first few years. Isn't it so interesting that uh, w- some of the most critical years in the development of someone's mind are the very first years uh, of their life? And yet we live in a world where until you're five years old by whatever, September 1st, uh, you're not, you can't go to public schools. You're on your own, buddy. Uh, are we neglecting like the actual most formative years uh, of, of, of kids? And by the time they come to school, some of the challenges you see as an educator, um, is it almost like you missed the real window that you wanted to intervene in? Yeah, great question. And I think this is a gap between individuals who are living in poverty and individuals who aren't living in poverty. Uh, What the research tells us is the pre-K years are vital for language development and literacy development. And so I've been really supportive of some of the efforts 
for pre-K programs, particularly for low-income communities, because if you talk to a kindergarten teacher, they'll say, student A can come in and she can read. Student B comes in and they don't know their letters. And so there's such wide variance at the kindergarten level that I think there are some things we can do as a community to make sure uh, we're taking advantage of that brain development uh, early on. The other thing I just want to mention, going back to the apprenticeship stuff, uh, graduation rates in Oregon are the second lowest in the country. Hmm. 78% of students are graduating on time. High school. High school students. Mm -hmm. In Beaverton, um, the graduation rate is in the 80s, uh, which is pretty good. But for the CTE program, for the career in tech ed, the graduation rate is 98%. And I think that really speaks to if we're able to find someone's passion, yeah. then they're much more likely to be successful. And so I'm really proud of that in Beaverton. And I think we really need to make sure that CTE programs are embedded within our schools. That's a great point. And then on the on the other side of education is the issue of affordability of college. And I guess... You know, you and I are both the product of state schools, um, big state schools, um, and 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 I don't know if you f- share my feeling, but uh, that that means something to me. I mean, I think it was a good place to go, and you really got to meet people from across your state, even beyond a broad slice of of society. Uh, you know, made some friends you have for the rest of your life, um, and education was affordable uh, back when you know you and I went to college, uh, especially at a state school. Now you see people start saving for, you know, for their kids' college, you know, the moment they're born. Um, one of the priorities in, if, if you were elected, would be to keep college affordable, particularly the, the Oregon State Schools, or, and how would yeah. you, so what, you know, what do you think about college affordability? So, so I have a funny story about this. Yeah. Uh, when I was in college, Oregon State shifted from 51% being publicly financed to 51% being tuition dollars. I see. And so we actually put forward a bill to change the name of Oregon State University, this is a true story, to Oregon Student University. Ah. Because we said if this was a business and we were the majority shareholder, you could it would make sense exactly. that we... And so the legislature did not go for that, but we were trying to prove a point. Now, it's much less than that. And so I think we have seen a divestment. And I'm, I'm worried what that does for the opportunity gap that individuals with a lot of money might be able to afford that. But public schools historically were a place where everyone was supposed to be able to go. And unfortunately, that's just not the case anymore. And and the other thing alongside that is is med school debt, which you know probably all too well about yeah, as well. it's crazy. I mean, I guess I think that it's a, it's a huge problem in, in many respects. One, um, it, when you hear somebody t- pays $100,000 plus for a degree in philosophy, uh, it boggles my mind where that money is going because a degree in philosophy is a bunch of books that are all really cheap and being <laughs> able to talk to somebody who can kind of push your thought process. That's really the whole degree. And so why is that $100,000? It's like a Looney Tunes number. Um, I'm like, are they learning from how we price drugs in, in cancer? Because that's really, it seems like the way sure. they're pricing. So I guess a part of me thinks that the prices are, uh, the, the sticker price has just got to be wrong. I mean, I think there's got to be some taking advantage of the fact that um, people know that college is so important for your career lifetime's earnings, and so they can capitalize on that, particularly brand name sort of institutions can capitalize on that. But it's not really the cost of the education. And they may use that money for all sorts of purposes, like, I don't know, building shiny new buildings or whatever. So I think that's a big problem. And I think you're absolutely right that like you need to be able to make it so that anyone who you know, scores a certain level, but, you know, doesn't have to score 100%, you know, but scores a certain level and wants to do this, has an affordable path to get there. Um, and, and you know, you talk about broader policy, you, you know, a, a lot of data does suggest that 
wealth inequality is perpetuated by systems that prevent people born in lower quartiles of socioeconomic status from being able to go to college and thus being able to perhaps transform their lifetime wealth from that of their parents to actually jump a few rungs up the ladder. Um, and, and, and it seems like if college is not affordable, you've taken away that ladder of opportunity that's sort of one of the bedrock principles of this country. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think there's been a shift throughout our education system that education is a private good, mm-hmm. that, that your degree is good for you. And we have moved away from the discussion that your degree is actually good for us, that you being educated is going to help society. You being an oncologist, for example, is, I, I mean, I want oncologists to take care of me if I get cancer. Right, it's a public good. And, and so the degree to which we can shift the conversation to say, actually, we want an educated population. They're healthier, they're um, less likely to commit crime, things of that nature. And so. I think that shift is in part part of the problem with the divestment in, in higher education specifically. I see. And we'll be back with more of the interview, but first let's take a break for a question of the week. I'm back in plenary session HQ for question of the week, hematology oncology board preparation edition. This week, I'm back in the studio with Dr. Emerson Chen. He's an assistant professor of medicine here at the Oregon Health and Science University. He's a budding GI oncologist with an expertise in esophagus cancer, GE junction cancer, gastric cancer, pancreas cancer, hepatocellular carcinoma, and colorectal cancer. Emerson, it's great to have you here on the show. Yeah, happy to be here. You also have an interest in health policy, and that's where we know each other well, having worked together on a few papers. Yeah. And we have a few papers coming down the pipeline. Yeah, be on the lookout. If the reviewers play ball, you'll see them. Yeah. All right, so today you're going to launch your question of the week with a twofer. Two questions about colon cancer that play off each other and a little bit related. So why don't you start with question one? Take it away. All right, question one. 64-year-old, previously healthy woman with newly diagnosed metastatic adenocarcinoma with bilateral liver mets that were innumerable on the CT scan. Molecular testing shows KRAS, NRAS, and BRAF wild type, and the MSI status is stable. She's interested in preserving her quality of life balanced with life-prolonging treatment. What would you recommend as the first-line treatment here? A, Fulfox plus Bevacizumab, B, Fulfiri plus Planetumumab, C, Fulfox Fury plus Bevacizumab, D, Kpox plus Remdesivirumab, E, Simultaneous Liver and Colon Resection. Hmm. It's an interesting question. So what you have presented is a 64-year-old healthy woman who's got newly diagnosed metastatic colon cancer, presenting with innumerable liver mats. That's a key word, innumerable. She is KRAS, NRAS, and BRAF wild type. So she's extended spectrum RAS wild type, and she's MSI stable. She wants to preserve quality of life and life prolongation. So what do you recommend? All right, I see a lot of lot of pearls here. Um, let's go through it. And then the options are Fulfox Bev, Fulfiri Panatumumab, Fulfoxiri Bev, Kpox Ramucirumab, or what I like to call Zelota Oxaliplatin Ramucirumab because of some complaints on this podcast, and simultaneous liver and colon resection. Well, the way I'd approach your question is by picking out the keywords. So one keyword I see is innumerable. And when I see innumerable liver metastases, I think that precludes the option for someone to undergo either a sequential or staged or simultaneous 
surgical option. So I think liver and colonic resection is off the table. This is somebody who will not be cured surgically. So that's not an answer. When I see KRAS, NRAS, and BRAF wild type, then I think there's gonna be some data that supports at some point in this patient's treatment course, the use of an EGFR antibody therapy. But lest I get too excited, I see that sequel word pop out. So this is a primary right-sided colonic adenocarcinoma. So I think emerging data has suggested that the benefit of anti-EGFR-directed therapy is lost for any one of a number of reasons. One, it's lost if you have downstream activating mutations in RAS. It's, down, it's lost if you have a BRAF V600 mutation, which is part of the reason why I fault the beacon trial for nevertheless trying to give cetuximab. It's also lost if you have a right-sided primary lesion. That's been a subgroup analysis reported in FIRE3 and in the CLGB study. So I think that that's trying to take you away from the option of an EGFR-directed therapy. So I think you're left with three options, Fulfox-Bev, Fulfoxiri-Bev, Capox-Ramucirumab. And I think Fulfox-Capox are both reasonable frontline options that preserve quality of life and improve survival. But technically, ramucirumab does not have FDA approval in the frontline setting. It has it in the second line setting. Fulfoxiribab, I suppose, would be supported by Tribe 1 and Tribe 2. But it ain't a walk in the park, especially in a 64-year-old woman. It's probably going to have deleterious quality of life effects. Although we don't yet have the final report of Tribe 2. So all this together, I think the only acceptable option is Fulfoxbev for this question. What do you think, Dr. Chen? That's correct. And uh, just to, um, so the CalGB study that you're referring to, this uh, CalGB80405, and that's really kind of the reference for this question. Um, and really uh, the, the most common first line regimen you'll see is really uh, trying to pick the chemotherapy doublet, whether it's Fulfox or Fulfury and sometimes Kpox. And for a right-sided colon cancer, then we will use bevacizumab uh, rather than anti-EGFR therapy. So that's because, what's the bottom line? If you have a right-sided tumor, then when you compared cetuximab to bevacizumab, there was no survival advantage from cetuximab even in the RAS wild-type population? So some of the, um, so definitely for first line, we would use the uh, bevacizumab here. Um, but in subsequent lines, a lot of times we still might use the anti-EGFR therapy. And um, which is, uh, I think there's some, um, some of the subsequent analysis suggests that maybe anti-EGFR therapy will not work at all for, for any lines of therapy, but others um, uh, show otherwise. Um, so in general, we do might still consider the anti-HFR therapy in the second or third line for right-sided colon cancers. So let's say you have this patient and you give Fulfiribev in the front line, okay? Okay. Then the patient has progressive disease. Uh-huh. And you give Fulfiri again. Do you like to do that? The same chemotherapy doublet? Yeah. Um, and you've never given Oxali. So we, te- we tend not to. Yeah, then why don't you tell your pals on Beacon Trial not to do it? Huh? <laughs> I got him. I got him good. I knew. I knew you'd, I knew you'd say the right thing. Good. Okay, so, so you're saying the answer to this question, as written, is Fulfoxbev. Correct. Correct. And you're saying, and let's talk through the other options, Fulfoxiribev. What if somebody said that the quiet of life is fine on Fulfoxiri? What are you going to say to that? 
So based on the Tribe 1 and Tribe 2 study, there was an overall survival advantage that's observed um, by using full fox fury. Um, it's unclear how much the bevacizumab is adding here, um, but certainly a triplet chemotherapy regimen is very, it's a very active regimen, um, and there was a survival advantage. And the Tribe 2 actually suggested that you could do four months of full fox fury followed by um, a maintenance and then reintroduce chemotherapy and disease progression. So that makes the this strategy more tolerable so that it's not um, hardcore chemotherapy the whole time the patient is on treatment. Hmm. And so this could be, um, definitely could be considered in a motivated patient um, uh, and who can tolerate um, a, a harder chemotherapy regimen. Tribe 2 is not published yet. Yeah, I'm waiting for the full publication and it'll be um, it'll be interesting to, to look through it, but definitely the presentation at um, ASCO was pretty compelling. Mm-hmm. I see. I see. It's an Italian study, isn't it? That's where these tribe investigators are from. Yeah. Maybe the patients there or the participants there are, are able to tolerate um, triple chemotherapy regimens. In your experience of giving triple chemotherapy, is it it's a difficult thing to give? I see, look at you. Listeners don't know, but you're cringing. You're visibly cringing here on the podcast. Well, I haven't, you know, I think in clinical practice, a lot of times we use the full fox fury regimen for someone we're trying to downstage for a livery section. Um, we tend not to use it in people where we're um, really doing non-curative, um, where the intent is more not, uh, is, is palliative and uh, there isn't a plan for, for surgical resection. Hey, what was the name of that randomized trial that shows neoadjuvant chemotherapy followed by liver resection is superior to treatment as if a patient had metastatic disease. What's that randomized study called? For liver resection? Yeah. So it's a EORTC study, um, I wanna say 40903, Uh where uh, um, for patients with liver-only metastases. Uh Getting full fox. um, They were either going to liver resection um, versus uh, perioperative uh, full fox four, pre-surgery and after surgery, uh-huh. and there was a recurrence-free survival advantage, uh-huh, uh-huh, but which was uh, the um, they were statistically power two, but their final analysis suggests that the overall survival, which they weren't power to calculate, uh-huh. um, was maybe similar in both arms. Uh-huh. So what you're saying is, and this is ERTC 4098.3, perioperative full FOX 4, chemotherapy versus surgery. We found no difference in overall survival with the addition of of perioperative chemotherapy full FOX 3 compared to surgery alone. But this also might be, um, you know, we do have a lot of, we do have multiple chemotherapy regimens now, and Mm -hmm. it's possible that the people on the, the control arm they were getting chemotherapy and that's why they did better. And so there wasn't an overall survival advantage in the end. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And now what's the study that shows full fury, full foxiri, downstaging someone to liver-directed surgery is superior to just treating them as if they're metastatic? So I don't think there's randomized trials. I know, trials. that's what I was trying to get out of here. Yeah, there's no <laughs> randomized trials. But that doesn't stop everyone from doing it. Because when you're a doc, when you're an oncologist, the only good oncologist is an overly aggressive oncologist, believing always that they can cure someone with more chemo and more surgery. But 
The importance of clinical trials is to know if that hypothesis is true. Okay, well, I won't persist on that point. And having tackled that question, let's go back to the interview. I want to ask you a couple questions about like what it's like to run for office. Sure. And, and one of the questions I have that I always wonder about is, you know, you're running in the Democratic primary, and my understanding it's a very competitive primary, uh, in part because the primary is going to decide the election, that there's going to be no real uh, opposition on, uh, in, the, in the general election. And that's just a product of where you are. Um, so I guess one, one of my thoughts is, is that when you're in a primary, whether it is this case or, you know, like any other primary, and you know you want to distinguish yourself from other people running. And to be honest with you, I don't know everyone who's running in sure. your in your area. Um, I, I guess I'd say I think it must be difficult because you know y there may be some differences. And I'm, I'd love to have you talk about what do you think the differences are between the candidates, or like why do you think you're? And maybe it's, maybe it's not about a difference in philosophy, but a difference in um, force of personality or the ability to speak and strike a chord with people. Um, and that might be what sets you apart, you know. I, so I don't know that, but I guess it must be difficult because you probably all agree more than you disagree, at least in the broad space of like all the political views out there in the world. All of the people running maybe see eye to eye about some general principles of what education means and what healthcare means. So I guess I mean, how do you think about that? Sure. Yeah. Well, I I study education politics, and going into this race, I decided I would talk about me. Um, and my qualifications, like a job interview. But like a job interview, I don't talk about the other people running. I see. And so from my perspective, uh, Jenny and I grew up in this district. I actually remember when Mitch Greenlick knocked on my door. I was in high school. Really? Oh, and yeah. he asked for my vote. And so our we have kind of deep connections in the community. And I think that longevity has helped me understand how our community has changed and ha and what we need to do to address those changes. For example, traffic is awful now. Mm -hmm. And the development has led to overcrowding in schools. And so how do we manage that growth? The second thing I tell folks is Oregon has a long history of electing people with legal and health policy backgrounds. That's I mean, true. Governor Kitzhaber was governor forever, right? Like, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, 12, so, and, and Professor Hero, which you see before. Yeah, yeah. And, and so so I think we have we can take a lot of pride in that. What we haven't done is elect people with education policy backgrounds. We, we do not have a lot of people who have stood before a class and know the difference between having 30 students in a social studies class and 46. And so I talk to people about growing up here. I talk to people about being an educator. I also talk to people about my roots in Washington County. I work with the Washington County Democratic Party. And the district's interesting because it includes Multnomah County and Washington County. And I think understanding both sides of that district is really important and being able to articulate to folks what it means to be an unincorporated Washington County. So I have a Portland address. I'm in Washington County. I'm in Beaverton Schools. That's that's kind of a weird mm -hmm. um a weird combination of things. Right, right. I see. So you, you, you keep it focused on yourself, and that's how you handle this, uh, the, the fray. And I think that's probably the, the fairest thing you can do. Um, and, and I guess the, the reason I think about it is, you know, sometimes I watch the national debates for the primaries, and I think to myself, like, oh, my gosh, you know, uh, yes, there's an argument here about whether or not we ought to move uh, to public option versus Medicare for all. But I think even the most ardent proponent of Medicare for all, if they're actually in the seat and they actually have people, diverse stakeholders come to them who point out the fact that, look, even though your goal may be a laudable goal, because this is a way that we'll be able to control costs and ensure everybody for the lowest amount of GDP possible, it's like a really good goal. This is a two to $3 trillion a year industry, and we can't flip the switch overnight. There's going to be t 
tons of unintended consequences and massive catastrophe in the healthcare sector. So we got to incrementally get there. And maybe what that incrementally get there will look like is like the plan of your opponent that you're super critical of. Like, so what I want to say is that they're probably more similar than they are different when they're actually in the decision seat of, you know, how to get there. Um, so that's one thing that, you know, I'm struck by, like, at least in terms of national politics. And, and I think they're probably also more similar than dissimilar in the sense that their, their goal is really the same, which is provide universal health care for um, as low a price as possible and hopefully to curb health care spending. And I think once we get to the universal part, that's the first part we got to get to, the ability to curb price will largely be, um, one, more bargaining power, and two, somebody will come along and say, like, look, we got to go through healthcare and actually use evidence to decide what works and what doesn't because we cannot be spending 25% of GDP on healthcare. You know, society will crumble. You know, yeah. you, I mean, like Rome, Rome was in decline because half the days were holidays. Our society will be in decline when 60% of GDP is on healthcare. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's like, so I guess that's, that's one of my thoughts about, you know, when I see this national election. Okay, another question for you about politics. Mm-hmm. We were talking about this before we started, which is that, and you put this well, this is a job interview. You're interviewing for a job. And the difference is, unlike most job interviews where you just have to please one or two people, uh, you have to please a lot of people. It's really about pleasing lots of people and, and getting them to believe in you and buy into you. So it's a job interview where everyone out there is is the interviewer. And I guess what I, what I was telling you before that I'm always struck by is um, that in a job interview, many questions would be considered taboo. I wouldn't be able to ask about mm-hmm. your personal life or your kids or where you grew up or what you did or, you know, all these kinds yeah, of... Really... Legal would be at your door. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Legal would be at my door. But in politics as a job interview, it seems perfectly acceptable and reasonable, uh, or at least people believe that, to ask these questions. Part of me always wants to bristle and be like, you know what? I've articulated how I was going to do things. I articulated where I come from and how I'm going to think about decisions, as you've articulated, which is your data-driven person. Um, and, and these things are these questions are really irrelevant. Uh, but so, how do you see that? I mean, you must be. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a balance. I I was raised in a family where we weren't supposed to talk about ourselves or make ourselves the center of attention, mm-hmm. which is like the opposite of what running for office is. Exactly. Yeah. To me. Trust is at the center of so much of this, that people are looking at our political system and seeing individuals they can't trust. And I can tell you there's nothing I worry about more than having someone I don't trust in charge of our national government. Like, that's terrifying. They could decide to go to war or not. Right. And I want to trust that person. And we have had leaders I've trusted. But I think when people ask me about if I have a partner... And when they learn, I've been with that partner since I was 16 years old. They're like, oh, okay, like there's some loyalty there. I get that. When people learn that I grew up in this community, you went to that high school? Yeah, I went to that high school. I want my kids to go there because I believe in this education system. That's building trust. When they hear I'm a parent, and it's frustrating to me when my kids don't sleep at night or when my kids get sick and the daycare calls and I've got to leave work they can relate to that. And so I think part of the challenge with our political system and leadership more broadly is when you are elected, you know, this is a district of 70,000 people and one person will be elected. Mitch Greenlake is it. And so the degree to which he can say, actually, I'm one of you all. I, you can come to me, you can trust me with decisions that are going to affect your family. That's really important. So that's how I view it. And, um, it, it's an adjustment for sure because most job interviews don't don't ask me those things yeah. but but i view it as a way as an opportunity to show my character and to build trust 
you're a good person for looking at it that way well, because yeah, I I'd look at it in a very hostile way and I tell him like, look, buddy, you you don't get to ask all these questions. Question time is over. You want to ask policy questions? You ask policy questions. You don't trust me? You can go take it. You know, you can go screw yourself. Because, I mean, because part of what I want to say is that like, um, but I mean, I appreciate you for all those traits. But even if you were not those traits, even if your spouse was somebody you met one year ago, and even mm-hmm. if you didn't have kids yet, um, you know, you'd still be trustworthy in my book. Because I've had a chance to hear how you think about different issues. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, but, of course, I commend you for, you know, who you are. And I just do think that it, uh, I want to draw the hard line of saying sure. it is irrelevant. And, 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 uh, and I think, you know, like of all the things you've said that I think makes you, like, most qualified, it's this idea that it's okay to change your mind. That is so taboo in this system <laughs> where it is thought of as weakness to change your mind. And I think it's because maybe people do suffer from apology fatigue a little bit. And I do think there's a lot of political figures who apologize for things where they're not really sorry. And I think we should apologize for things you're really sorry about. But if you're not really sorry, you shouldn't apologize. You should just embrace that. Um, It's interesting to me how that that plays into this. And I um, I guess the next question I want to ask you is, there must be some issues that affect the state legislature, that you, you're you not an expert in going into it, right? Your background is education and healthcare insofar as that intertwines with education. Yeah. But, and to be honest, I'm not gonna be an expert on whatever it is you're gonna tell me, but there's gotta be something that this state legislator does that you know you and I have no idea about. Um, and I guess my question to you is, what is that issue? Sure. Um, and how do you brief yourself on that issue? Yeah, I'll give you a really good example. And I appreciate this question, but as a teacher, I've been doing this for a long time Mm -hmm. students love to throw questions at you that you don't know yeah i learned very early on to look them in the eye and say that's a great question let's find out so on the campaign trail i get asked sometimes questions i have i have very little background in or don't don't have all the facts Uh, i was knocking on someone's door the other day uh, an older gentleman who said uh, that his top issue was fishing rights on the Willamette River. Mm, and I, I said, tell about me about that. that. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I've gone fishing before. Like, my dad and I like to go, but I don't know the legal components of fishing. And so we had a great talk, and I learned. And, and so what I tell people is, I'm not pretending to know everything. I have been trained to how to learn. Yeah. And good. I spend my time reading and writing about evidence and arguments. I cannot commit to knowing everything, but I can commit to working really, really hard to understanding the issues that are important to folks. And I get terrified. I mean, I've heard, you know, people say, well, I didn't read the bill. You don't really read the bill if you're not on the committee and things like that. And it's like, what, what you're passing, you're passing laws. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, part of me gets it because it's a lot of material, but again, I've been trained to, to read and to learn. And so I think that's a huge asset that a lot of people can't say that, that are elected officials. That's that's well put. And so you're going to say that when somebody comes to you with an issue you don't know the answer to, you're going to go out there and learn about it the way you would if a student asked you that question. Absolutely. And you're not going to hastily come to a conclusion until you've had a chance to really take things in. Mm-hmm. And I think there's nothing more that people could could want because that's the that's the hundred percent right answer. And then I guess how, I wonder how you feel about like. And I know this a little bit from having heard some things over the years, which is that like even though we're in the Oregon State House, and even though. Um, you know, this is a relatively modest state with six million people or something like that. This is not California. This sure. is not New York State. Um, and and the majority of people here are, are, are part-time legislators. They all have other hats to wear, and everyone's doing some other job. And kind of just like average Oregon citizens who are part of a citizen legislature. 
Um, nevertheless, I hear that there's a pervasive and caustic and large role of lobbying in the industry uh, in so many things from um, people who, uh, it, it appears to me, some people may have even introduced bills that have been ghost-authored by the industry or things mm-hmm. like that. The industry is at their door. Um, the reason I see some of this is because you know, as somebody who, one of my interests is pharmaceutical drug pricing and policy, and that's an interest that's been going on a lot in this state. People have come to me and said, oh, did you see this new bill? Did you see this new proposal? And I read some of these things and my head's about to explode where I was like, oh, who wrote this, pharma? I mean, this is like a pharma lobbying bill. And I was like, and why is this being floated by a Democratic candidate? What the hell is going on here? So I guess my question is, maybe you don't know the answer to like why is this happening you know obviously i understand why the industry is is pushing for this but like why is it actually infiltrating um and two what can you do to resist it when you're in there so so i hope my comments about character and trust can be applied here right like if if i am of principles and can articulate that to you and you can trust me to, to hold up those principles, then if something nefarious came along, I could say, well, this doesn't fit in. I think lobbyists have power for two reasons. The first is there's a huge knowledge gap. Yes. It's everything, what you said, right? Like the average Oregonian doesn't know about drug pricing, or if they do, it's because they're terrified that they can't afford their prescription drugs or their rationing, as I've heard a number of people tell me, because they can't afford their monthly supply. Mm-hmm. So there's a knowledge gap. The second reason lobbyists are important is money in politics is awful and it's real and we have to do something about it. Oregon is one of five states with no campaign finance laws. That means Phil Knight could cut a check for a couple million dollars and it be completely legal. Individuals or corporations can give as much money to a candidate as as they would like. So somebody could give you a check for a billion dollars to run for state legislature. Yeah, that's why we're here, right? <laughs> <laughs> so any listeners can too. So there's there's two places you got to go. You got to go to Patreon.com and support this podcast. Then you got to go to Andy Sauls and give him a check for a billion dollars so he can win this thing. No, but so there's really no cap. There is no individual or corporation. Oh, and cap. Is, is there a limit? Like, um, is there a prohibition on like non-state? entities contributing to campaigns like for instance if it's some delaware based company can they just throw all this money into an oregon election my understanding is it would have to be a united states based company i say yeah um so you can't accept donations from foreign foreign nationals but but, anything in the u.s but anything in the u.s so Um, some maybe conservative family from arkansas could come here and throw all their money to oregon politics and push it one way or the other and and so what i think happens is Mm. it goes back to our point about political ambition and ambition in like a pejorative term right that, well, if I get to the Senate or if I get the governorship, then I'll be able to create the change. And then it becomes like the tail wagging the dog, right? Right. And so I think that's why lobbyists have a lot of power everywhere, but particularly here in in Oregon. And the the part-time legislature thing is interesting too, right? Because if I keep my job at Pacific, which I will, and I'll take a sabbatical for spring semester, well, the whole rest of the year I'm doing research and thinking about my job. I'm not learning about the policies or the bills I want to move forward, right? And so the part-time legislature thing, I think, cuts both ways to the degree that I understand why we don't want to have a professionalized legislature. Right. But if you're cutting the time folks are supposed to be spending on this stuff, they don't have the time to really go in depth on the issues. Or maybe some of them don't have the time. Right. And that's nice that you put it that way because sometimes when I've read these drug pricing bills, I, I can almost understand why somebody who doesn't know too much about this topic might be seduced by the bill. The language sounds good. The words like parity or equity or things are th- like that are thrown in there, but it's really a pharma giveaway. And the only reason I understand that is that's like the, one of the few topics I actually know something about, right? <laughs> um, but you're right. I think it is um, 
that's an interesting thought, which is like this idea that like, you know, we, y- you are, you are empowered to be a legislature if you, you know, you go successfully get through all this. Um, uh, but you're not given like a lot of time and resources to like educate yourself about every single issue. And so to some degree, you know, it's the people who come to you to try to educate you that you're going to be hearing a little bit loudly in their in your ear. Well, and the other the other point I would just make yeah. is legislators make twenty four thousand dollars a year, and so again, the taxpayer in me says, "Oh, that's great. We don't want to spend a lot of money on salaries." Mm-hmm. But from an equity perspective, Correct. Yeah. if you are going to get paid that, that means your family has wealth, you have accumulated enough wealth, yeah. or something to that degree. And so then we wonder why we don't have the racial representation we would like. We don't have the socioeconomic representation we would like because the system is set up in a way to incentivize old wealthy people, basically. To go into this field, yeah. That's a great point. The other point you made that I really struck a chord with me is this idea that and, you know, it's not in politics that I've been exposed to this idea. It's through medicine. But I've known a lot of people in my career who, as students, they were bothered by some things at the university, but they chose not to speak out because they wanted to get into good residency. And as residents, they were bothered, and they kept quiet. And as fellows, they were bothered, and they kept quiet. And as assistant professors, they were bothered and keep quiet. All because they say that someday I'm going to be dean of this place, and then I'll be able to fix things. But what happens is along the way, you've capitulated your whole life that you've lost the sense of who you are. And by the time you become dean, you're just going to be the same empty suit that most not all but many administrators are and 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 i think the same is probably true in politics absolutely yeah Uh, absolutely i think that's a good way of putting it and i guess i would just say i don't have a long-term plan i want to get in there i think we can make education more equitable i think we can do some things to help patients who are really worried about the cost of health care and if i have an opportunity to do that for one session and that's it that's great like that's that's an awesome opportunity let me ask you another question about politicking, which is, and this question's on the topic of like directly answering questions. See, you're good. You've directly answered every question I've asked you. Uh, but when I watch national politics, I see people not directly answer questions, even to the point where, you know, I know I'm at standing at the TV and say, just answer the question, answer the question. <laughs> God, you have a good answer. And the one example that comes to my mind was the last presidential debate where Elizabeth Warren was being asked, um, will Medicare for all increase taxes? And I think you know, this is what you wanted to say. I think what you wanted to say is, um, look, you want to know if you're a middle class person, are you going to pay more out of your wallet? That's all you care about. You're going to pay more out of your wallet. Well, let me tell you something. In the current system, you're paying this much out of your wallet. And I hear I'm making my hands like a big bar. You're making this much out of your wallet. In my system, if you come over to my system, uh, this much, which is a combination of what you pay in tax and what you pay in premiums and what comes out of your salary, uh, this is how much you're paying now. It's going to shrink in my worldview. And now you want to come along and you got Anderson Cooper here and he wants to ask me how much is going to be the premium and how much is going to be the tax. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter to you in the audience. All you care about is what's coming out of your pocket. That's going to be less. And if you want that headline to read, Elizabeth Warren's plan will increase taxes, I'm not going to give it to you, <laughs> right? Because I want to say Elizabeth Warren's plan lowers costs. And she's like, but you are fishing for a headline. That's why you keep asking me this question 50 times. But I want to give you the direct answer, which is maybe one part of this bar will go bigger, but maybe the other part will go smaller in such a degree that it offsets it. And all you care about is costs, and that's going to go down, right? So that's like the that's the answers that she wants to say. But I think she did what so many people do. And I think what 
people in politics, like longtime politicians, are trained to do, which is she like never directly answered the question. She dodged it. It allowed Pete to get that nice zinger on her, which is it's a yes or no question. She's not answering, um, which I also thought was a little opportunistic on his part sure. because he knows the answer just as well as she knows the answer, <laughs> sure. right? And he probably is not philosophically that different on this issue, right? So, I mean, I guess, you know, you're not running for president, but um, uh, but do you feel like you are still answer questions the same way you answer questions six months ago, like in this process, or or are you becoming more like circumspect? Is this is this something that is part of politics, or is it something that you know we don't have to accept? Well, I don't, I don't think we have to accept it. It's actually gone the other direction for me because as a professor of ed policy, I'm constantly telling students all of the conditions, right? So like even our charter school discussion, it's it's a nuanced answer. Like there there's no absolute there. And I think sometimes students and researchers are hyper careful to understand the conditions under which a medication or a procedure might might be beneficial. In politics, people at the door don't want to hear my five minute speech on charter schools. They, <laughs> so yeah. they want two or three talking points uh, to get an understanding of where I am. And so actually, I've worked to try to condense my message because my my research background is such that we are trying to to really explain the limitations and other right, things within right, right. within and limitations of our data, for example. What about when you knock on doors and you knock on the door of somebody who's like just not interested in local politics, and you're like, what? what you're like, what, what? I don't know if this happens, but I can imagine because um, you know it's kind of me for a lot of my life. It's like somebody knocks on the door. And it's like, you know, what do you care about? So you ask them, what do you care about? What you know, what matters to you? And they say. Nothing, nothing, yeah. nothing that you can help, you know? I mean, do you get that? And and like, what do you, and what do you think it is? It's a gap between like, maybe it's the fact that they didn't take a good social studies class in, 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 in high school. So they actually don't know what the local government is controlling. Is that maybe the issue or? So, so district 33 has folks that are really invested. And so I would say the vast majority of people are really interested and pay attention and invested. When I come across people that aren't invested, it reminds me of the high school student who feels like his or her school doesn't connect with him. And so I think my job is to help demonstrate how I can help mm -hmm. and why they might trust institutions that over time have lost a lot of trust. Mm -hmm. And and so I, I find that usually there's some reason why individuals aren't interested in state politics or don't feel like it's it's helping their lives. I see. And that's probably the the best thing you can do in that situation. But it might take you know more than one discussion to get sure. somebody there. Um, what about the power dynamic in the state legislature? I was reading something last year, which was that uh, Kate Brown, even though she controlled a majority in the Democrats, they had to walk back certain issues because the Republicans threatened no longer to even report to the next session. And so they use sort of uh, if you if we don't report there, you can't pass any bills as sort of a um, a, a negotiating tactic, a hardline tactic. Um, is this the case that that if you don't have a certain quorum, you can't even hold a session, and thus even very small minorities can ha exert tremendous power? Sort of a filibuster of sorts. Yeah. So the Republicans in the in the state Senate walked out twice. Uh, the first was uh, around the Student Success Act, and the second was uh, around Cap and Invest, which was an environmental policy. The quorum requirements were larger than the majority, and so they, the state Senate couldn't hold session. From my perspective, you should show up to work, yeah. right? Like, I, I mean, part of me gets it because it's a strategy, but the other part of me is like, well, you're getting paid 
if I was if I didn't show up to my job, yeah, my employer wouldn't be yeah. like, okay, I'm going to give you a couple of things you want so you can come back. At least I don't have that poll. Maybe you have that poll here. No. <laughs> uh, so so I just I don't know. I view this as service, and if you're if you view it really as a service, I don't think you go hide and don't tell people where you are. I think, um, and only one party can do it, which is uh, parties that um, believe the role of government in the lives of people should be minimized, that it should be less and less and less. They can easily just not do anything because that sort of fills their philosophical mission. They just don't have to report to duty. If we never had a state legislature and everything was just, you know, whatever, I'm doing my job. Sure. Right. So it's only like the Democratic Party could never do that because you have things you want to pass. Well, I I do want to say about 20 years ago, the Democratic Party did indeed do it when they were the minority. And Uh so one of the things the Republicans said was, you know, the Democrats have done this as well. And so I I get what you're saying. But unfortunately, it's been a tool used by a lot of different people. They really did walk out. Yeah. What was that issue back then? Do you remember? I don't I don't remember the details on that. But I know it was when the Senate uh, Uh was under control of Republicans. I see. It's been a long time in Oregon. Uh, I wonder how you feel about Oregon's taxing for a second, because um, you know I was reading a really interesting article by Emmanuel Saez from uh, Berkeley, who's a real sort of an expert on wealth inequality, and it was making this sort of astute point, which is that um, you know we talk as if in the United States that we have a progressive tax system, i.e., people who earn more pay a uh, not only do they pay absolutely more, but they pay a higher percentage based on the more they earn, so that we use taxation as a way to sort of redistribute wealth to people who have very little. And in part, if you look at sort of the tremendous economic success of this country post World War II to circa 1980, it occurred occurred alongside a massive shift in wealth that allowed for the very first time people who were born in the lowest rungs of society to really advance. And so income uh, mobility is a great tool to achieve a peaceful, prosperous, strong society. And what these people looked at was, and and insofar as that's true, we talk as if we have a progressive taxing system, but they added up um, city, state, sales, and income tax at every different you know tax bracket. And what they find rather provocatively is that it's not that progressive at all. It's pretty flat and maybe even a little regressive um, that low income people are paying more tax because. You know, no matter what your income is, you still have to buy milk and buy bread and you have to pay sales tax. But I guess Oregon's a little bit different in one sense, which is that we don't have a sales tax, which is typically, it is a regressive tax because whether I make a million dollars or $50,000, to be honest, at least with me personally, I'm gonna buy the probably the exact same things because I'm not sure. a buying kind of person. Um, we do have a progressive income tax in this state, that's good. Um, and we have property tax, which I guess is a form of progressive taxation because we saw how big your house is. But I guess, I guess that's my question to you, which is like, what what do you think about for fair and just and equitable taxes? What is the role of taxation in society? What would be the kind of taxes you don't like, and what are the kind of taxes you do like? Sure. Well, well, you hit on some of it, so that was that was a really good overview. I favor progressive taxation. I think. In Oregon, because we have not had a sales tax, we have over relied on the property tax. And so property taxes, relatively speaking, are pretty, pretty high, high here. Yeah. Um, my concern, individual income taxes, we have four tax brackets. Yeah. A lot of people don't know this. Yeah, what are they? If you pay if you earn zero to thirty five hundred dollars a year, you pay five percent. Okay. Thirty five hundred? Thirty five hundred dollars a year to eighty seven hundred dollars a year, you pay seven. Okay. Now here's the one that just gets me. If you earn between 
$8,700 and $125,000. You pay 9%. That's crazy. So so let me just reiterate, $10,000. <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe maybe you're a custodian, maybe you're making twenty, twenty two thousand dollars a year. You're paying the same rate as someone making a hundred a lawyer making a hundred thousand dollars a year at nine percent. That makes absolutely no sense to me. It's a huge range. It's crazy. And and, and that's like probably most actual people are somewhere in that range from oh, eight thousand to hundred thousand. And it's all the same sort of it's a flat tax really for most people. It is. And so then a hundred and twenty five thousand yeah. plus is nine point nine percent. And so what I would like to do and California I believe has ten tax brackets on individual income taxes. I, you got to stagger that, right? Like nobody's going to argue that the custodian should be paying the same as as an attorney. Of course. And so, so I think we have some work to do there to make it more progressive. When I talk to voters, I think Oregon has progressive values. Unfortunately, some of our policies are not progressive. Yeah. And so I think we need to shift the conversation to say, okay, if we value this, how can we, you know, give tax relief to individuals who again are, aren't making a lot of money? Yeah, you're hitting the nail on the head, which is that the stated goal of progressive tax is something a lot of people bandy about. But when you look at those tax brackets, you have to conclude that it is essentially like a flat tax for this huge swath. So I guess I would think as a policy person, like ways you'd correct that is like one more brackets. That's a good idea. Two, you could even make it like a continuous function, but then the math gets a little bit tricky. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Yeah. It could be a total continuous variable. Of course, you do data analysis, um, and. Um, I don't know. I mean, I was reading something ver- about taxes that was very interesting to me, which is like um, that, you know, these days with W-2 forms and all these sort of ways in which tax revenue is collected centrally, it wouldn't be that difficult for the IRS to send you a form filled out with your taxes just done for you. It would actually just be very simple for them to do such a thing. Uh, but the primary impotence to doing that is lobbying on the behalf of like tax companies like H&R Block and like accountants. TurboTax. Yeah, TurboTax. Because then I wouldn't go to Costco every mu- every year and buy that $44 turbo tax <laughs> right so that's like the major barrier to that and 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 to me that is frustrating because you know that's such an onerous thing to do but yeah that's a great that's a great example of way in which you could you see room for improvement on progressive taxes yeah and the, the other thing i talk with folks about is is tax breaks for yeah. corporations in particular i think uh oregon and our country spends a lot on tax breaks or tax incentives and a more complicated tax system is going to privilege those with power and yes. with uh, tax attorneys that can that can find the various loopholes. So I think simplifying the tax code is, is a more progressive ideal that individuals, I mean, taxes are complicated, right? The last time we talked about taxes heavily in this state was a state referendum on the corporate tax, which the corporation spent a lot of lobbying money and ultimately they prevailed. They had it shot down. Um, but when you look at something like that, it's, I find it a little bit hard to believe that that's actually what people really understood and wanted you know, that, that corporate tax bill, um, rather than that's what they were able to be pushed into through like just truckloads of ads. Yeah. Um, you feel similarly about that? Yeah, well, and it's interesting, this last session, they did pass an increase in corporate taxes and there was a deal cut. Yeah. Um, so there was no referendum to the to the voters for that, uh, which raised taxes about a billion dollars on corporations to fund K through 12 schools. So uh, I'm excited about that investment in our schools because again, our class sizes are too high, our teachers aren't paid enough, things of that nature. Uh, but I was happy that they were able to find that compromise after the ballot measure that you were talking about. I see. And we'll be back with more of the interview. But first, let's take a break for a question of the week. Let's go to the second question. I think this is illustrative. All right. So this is a 60-year-old man with wily metastatic adenocarcinoma of the ascending colon, was treated with full FOX by the Susamal for six months, but recently showed progressive disease on CT scan. 
Molecular te testing showed KRAS, NRAS, and BRAF wild type and MSI high status. What is an appropriate second line treatment after first line Fulfox bevacizumab? Mm. Good question. What are the choices? A. Fulfiri plus nivolumab plus minus ipilimumab. B. Fulfiri plus penetumumab. C. Fulfox Fury plus bevacizumab. D. Kpox plus remsirumab. E. Pembrolizumab plus regorafenib. Hmm. This is a good question. So this is a patient, six-year-old man with right-sided colon cancer. Yes. And he underwent treatment with Folfox Bev for six months. But he now has had progressive disease on the CAT scan. And molecular testing shows he's RAS, wild-type, BRAF wild-type, MSI high. That's a bit of a buzzword. So what's an appropriate second-line regimen? Okay, let's go through the options. Fulfiri plus Nevo plus or minus Zippy. I guess what I think you're trying to show us here is that that would be considered an unacceptable second-line regimen because, to my knowledge, that combination has never been given. I don't even know if there's a phase one trial. It's kind of like a. It's like you're doing an end of one phase one study in your clinic. Is that fair to say? Is there phase one even supporting this combination? Uh, I don't. I don't think so. I think a lot of the trials right now is really comparing immunotherapy to, um, chemo. to chemotherapy. Not giving everything um, all at once. Correct. Yeah, okay. So then the next option, fulfiripanitumumab. Okay, they got fulfoxbev. Now they're getting fulfiripanitumumab. This is somebody who's RAS wild type. That's all plausible. It's ascending colon. That's a little asterisk there, but I think that's a reasonable option. Fulfoxiribev, I think you're getting at the point that Fulfoxiri really doesn't have second-line data to support its use as a second-line chemotherapy regimen. Really, it only is supported by tribe studies, which are frontline studies. Kbox, I think what you're getting at here is that although it would be reasonable, I think, to, per, to use Zolota, and I'm only going to call it Zolota from now on because of the haters of this podcast, instead of 5-FU, um, you wouldn't give oxaliplatin again if you've just given irenotecan. And ramucirumab, of course, it does think have a second-line approval. Even though in that ramucirumab study, not a lot of people got BEV in the front line. Wouldn't you agree? It was only like, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it wasn't everybody in that right. study. Um, but, there, but it was still some, represented. Some people. Yeah. I, I want to say a third, but I don't know that to be true, so I don't want to say that. But I want to say something like that. Uh, pembrolizumab and regorafenib was your last option. And that is crazy town. That is, um, let's just say... That's the kind of option you get when you go to a center that treats cancer that advertises a lot on billboards. You might get that kind of wackadoodle. Yeah, and you do see a lot of these um, anti-VEGF plus checkpoint inhibitor trials out there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So somebody wanted to treat off probable, but there's no data to support it. So I think the answer to your question, I think what you're fishing for is Fulfox-Bev in the front line, extended spectrum RAS negative, it would be reasonable to treat this patient with fulfiri and panitumumab, which is kind of what this patient would have gotten in the CLGB study. Um, and you probably wouldn't give this patient zolota, oxaliplatin, and ramucirumab because you've just had them progress on oxali as patients have ever seen a renotecan. What do you think? Yeah, so, so among these five choices, I think the best choice would be B, but understanding that uh, for some people who really looked at the, the um, later FIRE-3 analysis, they feel that any anti-EGFR therapy wouldn't work in right-sided colon cancer. But I don't think that 
is really confirmed in other uh, randomized controlled trials like the CalGB um, 80405. Um, so I think most oncologists would still consider using anti-HFR therapy for right-sided colon cancer, but usually in the second or third line. Another good choice here would be Fulfiri plus Bevacizumab, um, second line, and reserve the anti-HFR therapy for later on. Um, and that will be based on um, the continuation of um, bevacizumab uh, study. Is it fair to say that as a general rule in metastatic colorectal cancer, your chemotherapy backbones are going to be full FOX, then full theory, or full theory, then full FOX? So there's no difference. Um, so we have it's a, really based on kind of the side effect profile. and We um, have a randomized so trial that tested the, the sequence, and it showed no difference in overall survival. It's an, I, I thought it was an Italian study that was appeared in the JCO. I yeah. have to double check that. Okay, so, so that's your chemotherapy backbone. And then I guess you are free to give bevacizumab irrespective of sightedness in the front line. Correct. Where you have a PFS but not an OS benefit. Isn't that fair to say? The Lensalt's paper, full Fox Bev in the front line is PFS, but no OS. Well, I think in the original study, the when IFL. we used the IFL study. Yeah, strong <laughs> man, straw man backbone. Okay, but a lot of people will give Bev. PFS, no OS. Uh, in the second line study, though, the Lancet Oncology paper does suggest an OS benefit for continuation of Bev, largely in people who receive Bev in the front line. Right. Or getting the second line. Yep. And that's a study that showed a... Um, would you call that survival benefit a game changer or a revolution? Well, let's just say statistically there is an overall survival <laughs> statistically, advantage. Statistically, yeah, it's a statistical. I think it's like a 1.6 month or something like that. Okay, or you could do full theory, full fox. You know, a common pathway in colon cancer really isn't full theory and then irenotecan never giving a patient oxaliplatin. That's not a common thing you see outside of. The full theory and, and then, then irenotecan. Uh, so, I mean, the studies looking at irenotecan plus anti-GFR therapy was done after people who's progressed on full fox and full fury. Yes, but not full fury without ever seeing oxali and then getting irenotecan cetux. There are a few of those people, right. but you wouldn't do right. that yeah. unless you're the beacon investigators. They don't seem to care about that kind of role. Now, let me ask you these questions. You have a patient with MSI high. Per FDA-approved drug labels, when are you going to give them a checkpoint inhibitor after how many lines of therapy? So the FDA label is really after two lines of therapy, and specifically they have to progress on irinotecan, fluoropyrimidine, and oxaliplatin, and um, an anti-VEGF therapy, and if they're uh, extended RAS wild type, an EGFR therapy. An EGFR therapy. So they got to get all those drugs before they can get it. Right. And um, even though the, the, the published trial suggests that uh, their re the response rate is as high as um, other second-line regimens. And so there is compelling supportive evidence that perhaps in the second line, um, a checkpoint inhibitor, whether it's ipinevo or pembrolizumab um, alone, um, that those regimens uh, uh, in the second-line setting, it might be as good as a second-line chemotherapy. But, but we don't have a randomized controlled trial to support but. that. It's a big but. Um, although, you know, we'll find out what Soon. the first line um, trial, whether doing chemotherapy or immunotherapy first, uh, makes sense. So those trials, you know, will probably report out in the next year or so. And which is better for MSI high when you are in the third line or when you're in that sort of pan-refractory setting after all those drugs, Ipinevo or Pembro? Uh, they're not compared to each other. Um, yeah. so but one is more toxic. And, and single-agent nivolumab is also an option. Did it get FDA approval? 
single agent Evo uh-huh. map. Yep. So Ipin Evo, Evo, Pembro. So all those are all relevant options. Mm-hmm. And then how do you like to use your Regorafenib early and often? <laughs> do you use a lot of Regorafenib? <laughs> You know, I think for patients that has progressed on all of it, all other available therapies, it's reasonable to consider regorafenib and trifluoridine to paracil in the treatment refractory setting. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But if there is a compelling clinical trial that the patient would like to enroll in, mm-hmm. that's also very reasonable as well. Mm-hmm. Regorafenib is a drug that shows a survival benefit over best supportive care. Honestly, that's a lousy control arm. There should have been some option for investigator choice because some investigators would probably have re- legitimately retreated some of those patients with 5-FU or irinotecan yet again, which is something that the Beacon investigators have no problem doing over and over again, even if you've never seen Oxali. Trifluoridine tipiuracil, also known as Lonserf, also has a very modest benefit and also in a trial against what? Best supportive care. Correct. Yeah, so it's not too, nothing to get too excited about. Colon cancer is an interesting, an interesting disease. When you give Folfox, do you give modified Folfox 6? Yes. Okay, good. All right, well, that's about a wrap. So what are the takeaway points here? Right-sided colon cancer in the front line, not a good candidate for anti-EGFR therapy, even if extended-spectrum RAS wild-type. If RAS mutations or BRAF mutations, cetuximab by itself is not a great option. Uh, Cetuximab as a targeted agent by itself, even in combination with chemotherapy, is not a great option. Um, Folfoxiribev, I guess perhaps based on tribe two data in selected patients, but we haven't read the final study, so there's gonna be an asterisk there. Uh, your point about second line therapy is good. If you've gotten full Fox, you should get full Fury, or full Fury should get full Fox. Um, if the patient is RAS wild type, you can consider an EGFR therapy in the second line, irrespective of sightedness, based on current data. Though I, I wouldn't be surprised if we learn later right sided t- tumors don't benefit even the second line. But it's also reasonable to consider bevacizumab based on the Lancet Oncology paper. Of course, this is all. These are all points to know for the boards that are important. So I think you've covered a lot in these two questions. This is really a a tour of how you treat colon cancer, is it not? Yeah, and good luck on the boards. Good luck on the boards. You're going to need it too, because aren't you taking the boards soon, Emerson? Oh, that's right. But I I think I'll be fine on the GI cancer section. I think the GI cancer you got, and hopefully you're fine on many of the other cancers. All right, we'll be back again on a future plenary session to talk more. And having tackled that question, let's go back to the interview. Let's talk for a minute about pensions. Sure. Uh, it's a, especially around OHSU campus, it's a little sore <laughs> subject, as you may know. So I guess I'd say that um, the idea of a pension is a pretty good idea, which is that if you've worked for a state or governmental entity for many, many years, potentially even having accepted a lower salary than what you might have made in the private sector. Um, One of the nice things that society could show you is if you've been a teacher or a firefighter or a police officer is that, you know, even when you get older and even when you're retired, we're going to be able to pay you some amount of money to keep you whole, to be able to, you know, have a nice retirement. Um, And so it makes sense to me for people making $30,000 a year, $50,000 a year, $70,000 a year, $80,000 a year. But I guess every year that Oregon puts out their pension list, and a few things are, are interesting here. One, uh, Oregon's pension liability is in the billions of dollars. I see numbers ranging from 40 to 75 billion in unpaid liability over the next 20 years. And in terms of this state and revenue, it's like what the single greatest fiscal threat on the horizon. Sure. Um, and 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 I haven't looked at the raw numbers, but it probably is the case that a lot of it is just people who aren't making it a 
ton of money, just sort of average middle class people. But there are some outliers on that list. And one of them, you know, made the New York Times a year ago when our former president retired with his, you know, $70,000 plus monthly pension. Um, uh, and then now I hear recently that they have had some reform. And now going forward, pers- there's going to be a limit to it, like $195,000 a year uh, maximum pension. I guess, I don't know, what do you think the role of pension is? What's the goal of a pension? And how are we going to get ourselves out of this pension hole? Yeah, excellent question. When I ask people about teacher salaries, the vast majority of people say teachers are underpaid. We need to pay teachers more. Right. When you talk about pensions, some people push back and say public employees have too generous a pension. So mm-hmm. what I have tried to do is have a conversation. Okay, let's talk about total compensation. Okay, right. Because if we if we put the two together, right. if you think people are getting paid a little bit less and getting more generous benefits, well, maybe that's the compromise that was, that was there. Um, I firmly believe in collective bargaining. And so if those were benefits that were promised to people, I can't imagine a scenario where I'm sitting as a 60-year-old getting ready to retire 65, thinking I would have had a pension and then had the state say, well, just kidding, right? That, right? That's a pretty terrible no, that, that, situation. I think that can't be done. So from my perspective, here is what happened with PERS. Yeah. First, there were a lot of really bad decisions made by people who are largely not in office anymore. Mm-hmm. Some of them are, but by and large, the system was set up in a very unsustainable way. There were a lot of budget assumptions about return. I think 7% is the return that they anticipate, which still seems a little high to me. Uh, I'm fiscally responsible when it comes to long-term financial planning. And right. so I, I take those assumptions really seriously. And I think we have to dive into those. But there is a philosophical question here. If, if the state made a mistake with the promises to employees, what do we do about that? Right. And one answer is, well, we just take the benefits away. Well, to me, none of those individuals were involved in decisions. And in fact, they've done a service. My two brothers-in-law are both firefighters. That's really hard on the body. Mm -hmm. Like they're now in in their 40s and they're starting to feel it, right? Like they go out and they carry people around and they save people's lives. Mm -hmm. And so, so some of these public employees, the pension is there to say, this is really hard work and this is a public service that we appreciate you doing. So so to that end, I'm not comfortable saying that those folks should be the ones, police officers, firefighters, teachers, nurses, to, to pay that. Um, instead, I think we need to come together as a community and say, okay, this isn't sustainable. How can we create a sustainable system and bring everyone to the table and have that discussion? My concern is at times, individuals who are most affected by this aren't included in the discussion. And I think that's that's really tragic. I see. I mean, I hear what you're saying. I think. I mean, obviously, I think that when promises were made, even if they were foolish, misguided, or bad promises, walking back on those promises is a suicide mission by any politician and, and maybe even fundamentally unfair. Uh, the place where I think the promise may have been maybe that you could walk back a little bit and get away with it is people whose pensions are over $200,000 oh, yeah. a year. And then there they are. They are there with their 200000 plus pension a year, which is just boggles the mind yeah. that those kinds of lucrative positions are pensioned at that level. Um, although they may have been counting on that to support their caviar habits into their uh, later life. <laughs> yeah, well, and the other one that gets me is like the football coaches, right? Yeah. The football coaches that were making millions of dollars now have a pension that, um, again, it's just putting the state in a position where it's not sustainable. And 
And when you think about the budget as zero sum, that's money spent on individual millionaires' pensions rather than in classrooms or um, for affordable housing or other social services that we might want to spend our money on. Yeah. Now, I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about what is your views of public transportation and things like that. Is there any role for the state or is that really more of a city issue? Um, uh, you know, you talked about traffic in your side of town and my side of town, I live on the east side, is better than your side of town because uh, one, it's less mountainous, um, but two, we have better, I think, public transport. Um, and and, and it's, all, it's, I mean, this is not just in Portland, but this is everywhere where um, there has long been resistance in affluent neighborhoods to allow the construction of public transport. I mean, that's one of the barriers in everywhere from DC to Chicago to Portland. Um, uh, is there a role for the state in, in the transportation issue and the traffic issue? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you talk to people, they, the commutes that people have, um, when you say the words 217, people say, yeah. oh, that's the worst. <laughs> right. uh, and, it's, and it's gotten worse over time. And so I think the state needs to invest in green technologies to have public transportation. I'm a huge traveler. And when I travel to other countries and can take public transportation, particularly the rail, like we don't have a rail system. Like why is there not rail from Portland all down the I-5 corridor? That would be, that would be fantastic. Right. Especially we have an unreliable Amtrak to like Eugene. Right. right? And I I take the train sometimes up to Seattle. Like that's a lovely train, but it's always late. Yeah. Ah, Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so so that's my vision is that the state has to invest in green technologies because climate change is real. We have not done enough to address it. And I think Oregon could really be an exempt, an exemplar of about what we could do to create a a more sustainable future. You view it as like, even though the nation may have abdicated its responsibility that we have to at least do what we can. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's like your daily life, right? Like if, if, the culture is such that you don't agree with it. That doesn't mean you change your practices. Change your practices. You live your, your values every day and you hope to be true. Leadership is showing people an alternative. That's well put. Yeah. And, um, it's just such a it's such a tough issue because I think uh, it pains so many of us to see such uh, inaction uh, on, on a federal front and just really people just dragging their heels um, when uh, you know from everything from walking back on Paris to you know to all you know all these all these challenges we face. But Jay Inslee, to his credit, you know he tried very hard yeah, to did. inject that into the discussion, um, and uh, now it you don't hear too much about it on the on the discussion. All right. The last topic to talk about, Dr. Saltz, is the system of health care. Your father, of course, um, was a distinguished professor. He was chairman of family medicine uh, and very well revered on this campus. And there is still to this day an endowed chair in his honor, um, which is held by the wonderful Dr. DeVoe. Oh, yeah. And, and family practice, let's, let's make a plug for family practice. You know, if you walk around, if you go around this country, there are a lot of people who are... Um, critical of family, not critical, but they are not interested in family practice. It's all specialties. It's all specializing and sub, sub, sub specializing. You know, uh, you want to be the expert on the mitral valve only. You know, you, you don't want to take care of the whole body anymore. But family practice is something that's very rich and alive in Oregon, has a strong tradition, very strong residency programs. And that was something your father cared a lot about. And so I guess I'm wondering what your background in healthcare is and what, make, what makes you think about the healthcare system. 
Sure. I, this gives me an opportunity to talk about dad a little bit, which is great. So uh, my father grew up in rural Ohio and wanted to be a rural family doc. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a story about his father, my grandfather, getting really sick and had celiacs actually and almost died because no one could, could figure out what was wrong with him. They put him on an all pasta diet, which uh, evidently uh, is a really bad idea for someone with celiacs. Right. Oh, boy. That's and a medical so, reversal, I would say. Yeah. And so as a result, and this was when my in my formative years of my father's life, uh, junior high into high school. And so he thought this family doc was his hero. This guy saved his dad's life. And so he wanted to be a family doc. He went in the army because he didn't have money for college, uh, was ROTC, and was in the army training individuals uh, to be family docs. And so when he came out here, an important part of his career was training family docs for rural communities. Mm -hmm. As you know, access to medical care, particularly for small towns in Oregon, is, is really the family doc. And oftentimes they are the only doc in town. And so that was a passion of his. And he was able to work on health policy and really make sure that every community had access, not just Portland, Eugene, Salem, mm-hmm. uh, to high quality physicians. I see. That's great. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that, that's so important. And, and, and tell me a little bit what you think, you know, what have you learned about the healthcare system at uh, writ large? You know? Sure. Yeah. yeah. I was, I was thinking about it as I was driving in this morning, the healthcare system, I, I study leadership in, in education, and one of my favorite things to say about leadership is organizations are doing exactly what they were structured to do. Mm-hmm. Let me mm-hmm. say that again, because I think it's really interesting if you think about it. Organizations are structured to do exactly what they were intended to do. Mm-hmm. So with healthcare, I think that at almost every level, they're intended to profit, to, to make money. Mm-hmm. And they've hired a lot of people who are really, really good at making money. <laughs> and wringing every drop of yeah. money out of the system. Absolutely. From, from billing consultants to experts on, you know, how many centers to build. And, you know, like everything is about about money. And, and what specialties we'll bring in. Yes. Because those are the specialties that will bring us money. What research dollars, what researchers we will hire, because we know that, that companies will invest in those. Yes. And so... When we look at the healthcare system, I see a system that is designed to make money. There's no problem with that, but the ultimate goal should be to make our society healthier. Mm-hmm. And if we put people in charge where that was the ultimate goal, we would have different outcomes, in my opinion. And so I think we have, and Dad talks a lot about this, you know, in the, in the, in the good old days, physicians had a lot of agency and autonomy to, to make decisions. Now, most of that is contracted out. To, to business folks yeah. who run the practice. Well, they don't, they're not seeing the patients. They're not, they're not feeling the emotion from them. They're seeing the dollars and cents. And so I think we need a paradigm shift in our system and leadership to say, okay, well, what would it mean if, if all of healthcare is most concerned about our public health? We have a lot of homeless people in this state. Yeah. We have an education system that is not serving communities of color and individuals living in poverty. If we focus on the social determinants of health, we could drive down cost over right. time. But that's that's just not the priority right now, which is kind of a cynical way of viewing it. But that's that's my opinion about the system right now. No, I, I share your opinion 100%. And I think... Um you know, I, I share your 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 father's observation, which is that physicians used to have a lot of autonomy and and control of the system. You know, every once in a while, something happens in my clinic, and one of my patients tells me, you know, I don't like how this part of the the office runs, and I say, you know, I agree with you, 
but you're talking to the wrong guy. I'm just an employee. I'm a low-level employee here, and I have no power to fix the problem. I'm so sorry. And I was like, I wish I did, but I'm just a doctor, and as such, I'm just a low-level employee in this institution, and there are some administrative types who control these decisions far above my pay grade, and, and I don't even know who they are. But, I mean, I say that kind of jokingly, but there's a lot of truth to that, and once upon a time, doctors would kind of have a say in you know how these kinds of things ran. But your other point, which I think is so apt, which is that you know we shouldn't be in this blame game because the incentives are structured in a certain way and people follow incentives. And if you don't like that, um, and I don't like that, uh, and a lot of people don't like that, but if we don't like that, we gotta do what you're doing, which is actually go and try to put yourself in a place where you can fix those incentives so that people will pursue the right incentives. And I guess the last thing that makes me think about is um, um, to some degree universities particularly healthcare universities, which once stood, I think, for like true academic freedom and exploring possibilities, um, in part because the state and federal funding for these universities has been eroded over decades, they have been forced um, like hungry animals in the wilderness to find alternative sources of food. And they have become addicted to the profit, either from clinical operations or the profit from um, industry ties or these kinds of things. We have, we have addicted our own public institutions to these alternative sources of funding because we don't fund public institutions. And we do so at our peril because that leads to sort of major shifts in what the purpose is. And as you point out, maybe the purpose seems less and less pursuit of health and more and more pursuit of wealth. Um, and, and there are a lot of things that might have a huge return on investment for health that we don't do. Your homelessness example is great. I mean, my understanding is through some pilot CCO projects that actually providing stable housing at like co- as a cost effectiveness intervention for you know healthcare is, maybe you have the figures on this, is something that's like super valuable. If you can provide stable housing, it's, it's, it's worth like, you know, it, it, it's, it's worth the value of many anti-hypertensives and anti-cholesterol and anti-cancer drugs. Yeah, so, so I was doing my research before this, yeah. trying to learn as much as I could. Uh, and I came across a, a center of, for outcomes research and education at Providence Portland Medical Center. Okay. They found that housing with fully integrated service reduced healthcare cost by almost 9,000 per year for people on Medicaid, an overall decrease of 45%. Wow, and and the house, and that cost of housing somebody a year is is how much money, is like $11,000. It wasn't a lot of money. Yeah, that, that sounds right, yeah. yeah. So I think that's, you know, that's so compelling, and then it seems like, I mean, we could just make a, a shout out to the CCOs, but like, you know, one of the visions of this state was that, you know, we need to empower organizations that provide care for the so-called Medicaid population, the people who are, you know, typically covered in Medicare. We should give them some freedom. And if they think it might actually be valuable for them to pay for non-traditional healthcare services, for instance, an air conditioning unit in somebody uh, in someone's house for a kid who has asthma, because that air conditioning unit might keep them from having asthma exacerbations, let, let's free them to do such things. And I guess we hope to see, at least with 2.0 CCOs, you know, increased sort of experimentation in this space. What, how can we go beyond healthcare to improve health? Um, and and I, I guess I'm, I have to commend you for, for thinking about that. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, and I'm I'm encouraged by the CCO experiment, and I would would really look towards that as an as an area where we could really experiment and under better understand the relationship between some of these because like we've known about social determinants of health for a while now so now i'm excited that people are like actually doing something about it and really working towards trying to integrate some of these systems well that's super well put you know i don't want to 
I, I know you have another event after this, so I got to let you go. Um, but I, I guess I had some closing thoughts for you about, you know, what I what I've thought from listening to you talk. I guess I say uh, I want to commend you for doing this, for putting yourself out there. I guess I'd say I have a lot of admiration for you because what you're doing is not easy. Uh, you're just a teacher. You're just a professor. You're really putting yourself out there. Um, and you're going around and you're meeting people and you're hearing what they say and you're coming on this podcast and you're going to other things. Uh, you're putting yourself out there to, because, uh, to, to try to do this and, and help you know what we can do in our state. And so I commend you for that. That's something that I think a lot of us, we sit on the sidelines and we watch what's going on and, and we probably, like you, are frustrated, but we may be scared or reluctant or lack the courage or, or lack, I don't know, the push or uh, whatever it takes to actually put ourselves out there. So I guess I want to thank you for doing that. And I don't know where that comes from. Maybe a little bit of your father rubbing off on you. Um, but I think that's very admirable. And, uh, you know, whatever happens um, in this election, and I wish you the best, but whatever happens, you know, I, I think uh, you're already a winner in my mind because you were willing to go out there and actually roll up your sleeves and try to make a difference in this time where we need more people like you uh, to do this. Well, thank you. That means a tremendous amount coming from you. And I really respect the work that you do here. And uh, I'm excited. Like I said, it's, it's really fun to learn about the community. So I would encourage everyone out there, if you have a chance to visit andyfororegon.org, um, see what I'm about and happy to talk further about health policy or ed policy or House District 33. And if they want to follow you on Twitter, where do they do that? Uh, at Andy for Oregon. Okay. And, uh, and, and I want to tell, let them know that you, you were, you're a good student, even of this podcast, because you were telling me before we started <laughs> that you listened to like the 10 prior episodes before you came on yeah. to get a flavor of, uh, of, you know, what, what this is like. Yeah. Well, and I think it speaks to you. I mean, I don't have a medical background, so I mean, you're, you're talking about board questions and student <laughs> and student questions and, and it's, it was really engaging. I really enjoyed the, the podcast with when you were interviewed in particular, just to, to learn your arc of research, um, and, and what got you interested in uh, the line of, of inquiry that you have that I think is really important and really uh, making an important impact on the field. That's kind of you. Yeah, I guess I'd say that, you know, we're probably similar in the sense that, you know, whatever our, you're in education, I'm in healthcare, but we, the similarity is that we are interested in like how data guides policy decisions. Policy decisions, they sound boring and abstract, but they really affect the lives of many, many people. Um, they, they, policy, getting perfect policy is maybe an illusion. It can never happen, but bungling things up does happen all the time. And we see that. And I guess, um, I think we're both drawn to this idea that, you know, when you have the goals, the policy should actually move you in that direction and you don't want it to move you the other direction. And so, you know, I think, uh, you definitely, you know, you've got the skills that I think anyone would want there in the state legislature. So uh, I'll let you have the final thoughts, anything you want to talk about. Um, and uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. Sure. I, I would just say, again, thank you for having me. Uh, I think an integrated approach to policy is really important that we can have folks see the connections between education, housing, healthcare and uh, get involved. I mean, if you're out there, if you're frustrated by what you're seeing, there is nothing magical about this. You need to put in a lot of work, you need to listen to the community, and you need to demonstrate that you can be trusted to make really important decisions. But I would encourage you to get involved at whatever level you're comfortable with. And thanks so much. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for coming. You've been listening to season two of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. 
Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.